hey guys, I'm here with C. Derek Vaughn. Uh, could you introduce introduce yourself? Hey, I'm C. Derek Vaughn, um, and I am a podcast host of a bunch of different podcasts in America. <laughs> Though, I guess the country that you podcast from is somewhat irrelevant, except for your accent preference. I work for Zero Books. I am a school teacher by trade. I'm writing a book on Christopher Lash. I'm a poet. And I was an expatriate for about nine years and uh, came home um, to the States um, somewhat unexpectedly due to um, uh, family medical complications, specifically my ex-wife having cancer. And uh, I came back to Trump. Now, a lot of people freaked out about like, oh, you picked the wrong time to come back. And um, in some ways I did. But Trump isn't why, actually. Um, it was a bad time to come back. So um, I am one of those weird Americans who is not a total provincial because, you know, one of the things about being a cultural hegemon, and you will also see this if you deal with future cultural hegemons like um, people from China, uh, is you get the, you, you actually, by being in the center of power, you get to be pretty provincial. <laughs> um, you don't have to care about other people's media. You don't have to care about other people's um, languages because everybody speaks yours. Uh, so that doesn't that doesn't so much apply to me, actually. But yeah, so that's my background. I guess uh, so your listeners might know I come from a Marxist background, but my education, properly speaking, is in um, education theory, poetry, and uh, English English and anthropology, which is kind of a an awkward set of trainings that I initially did to be a science writer then a lawyer, um, and realizing both of those were dead ends, um, and became a poet and a, and a, and a high school teacher instead. And now I am kind of a jack of all trades intellectual. So it's a very strange background, but yeah. You've also been on like every single left wing podcast. Almost. I mean, I haven't been on Chapel Trap House and, uh, but you know, what's funny is I've been doing left-wing podcasts, um, and philosophy podcasts before they were common. So like when I started doing left-wing podcasts, there was diet soap from alpha to omega seeing red radio and a bunch of Pacifica radio shows like democracy now and Doug Henwood stuff. And that was it actually. Like, um, most of the political podcasts were libertarian. Mm, um, yeah, when no, I that, started working on this. Yeah, yeah, movie. that's that's been one of the biggest sea changes. I got into this whole weird politics thing uh, in like 2015. I ended up stumbling across because I'm a middle class white male. I ended up, you know, just being summoned to listen to libertarian podcasts, and then I just found my way to this weird anarchist position I hold. Um, so yeah, I, I I think that's pretty normal for people my age, honestly. Yeah, I, I think that's a lot of people's politicization if you're an Anglo speaker and you're subject to, you know, Anglo-American media and um, if you're a millennial, um, yeah. you know, and I am, uh, I like to talk about how I'm, how I'm between two reactionary generations, but differently, <laughs> but, you know, I am either the oldest millennial or the youngest Gen Xer, depending on how you define it. So that's where I'm at. I, I'm one of the. I, I'm a. I'm a person who grew up with both the internet and the and the Cold War. So it's you know, it's uh, it's a little different. Yeah, I think um, so I think a good way to like actually start talking about stuff. I think that a lot like, and we've gotten away from it a little, but I think like 
across the morass that is weird online politics, I think that the shadow of the Cold War like influences and colors things more than people realize. Oh, I think it does hugely. I mean, like I think, for example, this phenomenon of inter- of internet Marxist Leninism is a kind of disillusioning with the Cold War, but just inverts its narratives. Like it yeah, yeah, just, yeah. you know, it picks the other Cold War narrative as the truth. It's not particularly yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, critical of of yeah. of the Cold War narrative. It just inverts it. Yeah, I I think I think um. What I was thinking more of, and it's a little more sophisticated, uh, although you know that's not saying much. I think, um, I think like the online right, I think is actually uh, far more shaped by the sort of like alliances that were made during the Cold War and like factions that are. Oh, totally. I, I think that like basically like the Trump phenomena, but also like even around more like reified, uh, no. Uh, more like savvy and like intellectual types like you know like nick land or curtis yarvin uh i think like the trajectories that like them and their communities have gone uh i think i think like really is a reaction to uh like like like, um i think i think a good like example of this is like when nick land was you know back in like 2020 no 2012 or like 2013 he was coming up with his um like dark enlightenment stuff. He's like he was like explicitly like yeah you know like we're gonna get like racists, theocrats, and like you know unapologetic libertarian capitalists together to fight to fight the leftists. And we all know we don't agree on everything, uh, but we just want to fight leftists. Um, and he was explicit about that. Right. Um, it's it's the tentacle beast version of the Reagan coalition, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, really yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like a you know um like. Uh, H.P. Lovecraft plus William F. Buckley. Right. Well, he's really more H.P. Lovecraft pr- plus Joe Sobrin plus cybernetic theory. But but yeah, I mean, so f- for your Australian listeners who might know a little bit of my political background, I was radicalized left in my mid-20s, but I actually come out of the paleoconservative right that opposed the neoconservatives in the early aughts and where a lot of the weirdos are. And that narrative was totally shaped by the Cold War and the coalition, the the coalitions that is causing the quote unquote. There's two things driving the quote unquote realignment and its inability to happen in the United States right now. One is the weirdness of our class politics, and the other yeah. is the fact that even the evangelical wing of conservatism since the 70s has had a Bircher, a John Bircher core. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's full of conspiracy theories and was willing to make a coalition uh, between like hawkish liberals mm-hmm. who would later become called neoconservatives. Um, yep. You know, like uh, disciples of Leo Strauss, former Marxist um, yep. people associated for the Congress of American Freedom yep. Um, yep. with with evangelicals after the evangelicals lost their populist streak in the, you know, they, they started abandoning that in the 60s. Um, and when, um, and with neo-Confederates, um, you know, I mean, and, and there are even weirder ends of this because you got to remember parts of like, people always talk about Nixon and the Southern strategy in America, mm-hmm. getting all the Southern states to do all this race baiting, but they were also at the same time um, encouraging 
like former Panthers and people, you know, like Alex Haley, the guy who wrote um, the Malcolm X autobiography was a Knicks tonight. And that, that's where all this like black entrepreneurialism, entrepreneurial black power stuff was actually supported by the Republican Party at the time um, to try to get the black vote, wrestle it away from the Democrats where it had been since 1930, since the second, um, the second term of FDR. You know, and they tried it again during the Bush years. That, like during the Bush years, that you would see um, during George Bush, uh, the second Bush, um, you'd see stuff like, well, you know, Democrats were the party of segregation, which is actually historically yeah. true. But to try to like break up the the, the weird Democratic coalition, and mm-hmm. those co- the Democratic coalition is less informed by the Cold War, but still mm-hmm. kind of informed by it. Um, for example, the existence of a party of a broad coalition of groups that theoretically communist in America, which was a tiny, tiny faction. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. a couple of thousand ever, but like the CPUSA was in a popular front with the Democrats at the same time, the segregationists were still in the party. Like, and so, so like so that, the, much- it's it, that weird stuff is all in the DNA of American politics. I, I'm sure some of it is just like unique American weirdness, but how much of that is like you know just a lack of uh, you, you can't really run competitive third parties. Uh, a lot of it's that. I mean, there's also the fact that our party history is is quite different from the rest of the world in that we had voter based um, political parties earlier than everywhere else, um, but. Uh, and, in, you know, when I say voter base, like, yes, the, yes, the, you know, the mothership of all political weirdness, Great Britain, is where political parties really, like, formalize. Um, but they are parliamentary parties. They're, they're not really broad voter-based parties. Broad voter-based parties in America started pretty early on. I mean, like, within 30 years of the Republic's founding. Um, however, they weren't class parties. And um, my friend uh, Gene, who's... Um, who's Kurdish, and I have talked about this a couple times, the American party system uh, is kind of weird in that it comes out of the beginnings of bourgeois development in the United States. Right. And so, like, the Republican Party was always clearly the party of business. Um, And so, like, when business is progressive, it's progressive. When business is not progressive, it's not. But that doesn't that that doesn't imply that the Democrats weren't, and we never had a Labor Party. And when there was any fear that it might happen, um, the Democrats and the Republicans together um, passed Taft Hartley to make sure that that could never happen in the United States, so that there could not be even even with non-competitive third parties. The idea of like what happened in Britain, where the Labor Party supplanted the Liberal Party. Sorry. So how how mm-hmm. I'm vaguely aware of what Taft Hartley uh, is, but like what? Uh, so I believe it's like a set of regulations that say you are allowed to have legal unions, but uh, you can't do a bunch of stuff. Because I, I know it like emerged in like the middle of um, like a lot of wildcat strikes and labor unrest, and so they're like, okay, we'll give you legal protections, but you can't use these uh, tactics that like are quite effective like wildcat strikes so right. how well, how would have that so, how does that labor party from forming 
Well, it also stops stops political uh, striking for political right. aims and striking yeah. for solidarity strikes all become illegal and a way to lose your labor protections. Right. So those were really the mechanisms for how in in Germany and the UK for how the the idea of the labor parties coalescing and to do political actions and coordinating both electorally and with strikes happened. And when when they when they started worrying about that in the U.S., they wanted to make sure that never happened here. So that was part and parcel of what they put in. Taft-Hartley. So Taft-Hartley has a bunch of, of labor protections, but it also has a bunch of effectively poison pills yeah, um, yeah. for the labor movement. Um, and so like, the labor movement's weak everywhere on the planet, but it's why, like, even in, like, in the United States, it's weak even for the Anglo world. And the Anglo world's where it's the weakest anyway. But that also means that, like, we don't really have clear class parties in the way yeah. that a lot of other places have had. And what I've seen, actually, interestingly, in Europe, particularly in Britain, but it's beginning to happen everywhere, is that the class party notion, even though you've had, like, Corbynism and all that, if you actually look at the yeah. voting patterns, what is happening to them is an Americanization of their politics, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it's, where, it's, uh, where, I'm going to – so I'm, I don't have the stats on hand with me right now, but um, – Actually, so Will Wilkinson of the Niskansen Center, mm-hmm. which is like libertarian, but not really, he wrote this paper, uh, I think it's the density divide, where he basically makes mm-hmm. the case that, you know, politics around the world is becoming about like urban versus rural. And I imagine that's what's like happening with labor, right? Yeah, that, that's what's happening with labor. Yeah. And, 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 and urban and rural divides have gotten more pronounced everywhere. So that codes to a lot of different things. So it codes to religiosity, but it also codes to it codes to age. Um, it codes to education. So you can't say, for example, I mean, one of the weird things about Democrats in America is their coalition. If you look at their voting stats, is is both not the richest richest. So that like the real the the hot bourgeoisie, the old money, um, is is pretty much split. 50-50 on parties, but the tier right beneath them. So the people who make over $200,000 a year, the, you, you tell them like really successful, like professional labor aristocrats, um, urban small businesses, stuff like that. They're Democrats. And then the next category of people who vote Democratic tends to be under 80K a year. So, you know, the working poor. But Republicans have this weird thing in the United States where the areas that vote for Republican tend to be poorer than the areas that vote for Democrats. Yeah. Um, more of the country's poor. <laughs> uh, you can see where um, – but, but the average Republican voter actually makes between – at least for the presidency. I actually haven't looked at the stats for, uh, for down-ballot stuff. But the average Republican voter for Trump makes above $100,000 a year – but less than 200,000 and normally lives in these areas that are rural and, um, you know, and actually are systemically poorer than the rest of the country, which leads you to like, you realize that like you were talking about two very specific and in liberal terms, broadly middle-class factions fighting each other and uh, the working class kind of just picking sides, you know, but, but yes, the density and age is the biggest predictor yeah. The density, the, the population density of where you live and your age is the biggest predictor of how you're going to vote, I think, in most yeah. of the world. And it's definitely true in the United States, even more than your yeah. social class, even more than your gender, even more than your race. <laughs> Although, yeah, 
the the racial distribution is by no means even. So sorry, I don't want to bore your listeners with the boring, no, no, no. you know, this, nitpickiness this of American other, politics. You know, but. Like this is uh, extensive Atticus podcast. Uh, I think it's I think these trends, even if like you don't care about electoralism, are worth paying attention to. And you know, like obviously, a Labour Party and why it didn't form, even if you don't like have any interest in that, I think it's worth knowing that history. So thank you for that. Um, I think I think one thing, uh, and I. I, I think I found a book about this, uh, but I didn't get it. But um, I, I think one thing that would be interesting is seeing how, uh, like, personality types and age and stuff, all those characteristics, uh, map onto occupation. Because yeah, so the, there is there are studies on this in the United States. So this guy, uh, Jonathan Haidt's the most famous guy, and he's oh, really yeah, obnoxious, yeah. but. Um, Yes, but um, there's some other people who do work on moral tribe theory and talk about self-selection of personality types and stuff into into certain fields. I will say though, my my response to moral tribe theory was like they have a pretty good analysis for why like you have a bell curve distribution if you look at the general population of the United States of conservative, liberal, and on, and on tip on temperament scales, but they have a hard time explaining why that bell curve doesn't apply when you start breaking down sub-demographics, and that could be... And that's not just age. Uh, so race is a big one where the where, where you do see this spread, but it is nowhere near a kind of what you'd expect on a general... Like, this is a natural... Because they kind of argue that, like, liberal and conservative temperaments are just natural to the human species, and it's two different adaptation, mm-hmm. uh, you know, social adaptation regimes... And then you have to point out, well, okay, if that's, that might be true, but your argument that it's mostly genetic don't make sense if you're looking at the fact that uh, these change by region and these change by social class and race in ways that um, don't I track really, on to really, genetic I really difference. Would like them to do, sorry, I really would like to see them uh, you know, do one of those studies in like a third world country uh, or, you know, like... Yeah, I, I would too. So they did a bunch of, like, so the height study is in a bunch of countries, but the study itself is in English. So, of course, if you're going to be, even if you're not Western, you've accepted a a certain, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm a software warfist or anything. And for those who don't know what that means, if you believe that language determines your consciousness. Uh, But that, (laughs) that, you know, I just don't believe that, uh, that that if you, if you were taking that would totally you know, totally well translated things. You're not, and yeah. you set it up um, in every society that it would really look the same. And the other yeah, thing you're, you're, that I don't buy, that uh, I, I was just going to say, like you're obviously smuggling stuff, some stuff in. And then also, I think there's just the fact that, like, um, over the past like couple of decades, uh, one like statistic that I think is like really profound, and not enough people are talking about. I think like we're really reaching like. Uh, I think, like, you know, everyone on the planet is, like, close to being, you know, one or two uh, links or what, 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 what's that? Um, Kevin Bacon thing? I can't remember it right now. This is so interesting. Yeah. Uh, but, like, everyone, like, like smartphone penetration has gotten, like, pretty crazy high. Um, and I think uh, yeah, most people, like, my age, like, don't appreciate like what a big deal I've had, but like, you know, there's like occasionally like on social media, like every year or so, 
uh, someone will be like, you know, like the computer in your hand, uh, like has more processing power than like, like all the computers on the earth when we sent like people to the moon. Um, that's, that's like a really, really big deal. I think, um, that, I don't think people really understand how ubiquitous it is either because, like, when I was in North Africa, um, which I lived for two years in Egypt and, you know, you could even go to, like, rural Upper Egypt, right, Uh, which is in the south coast of Sudan. Mm. And you go to places that are using, like, housing and fishing technologies that are literally 4,000 years old and you will still find smartphones. Yeah. No, it's – and, you know, there won't be plumbing, but there'll be smartphones because that technology has gotten cheap enough that most people can can have some kind of access to it. Now, when I was first in Mexico, that wasn't as true about five years, uh, sorry, uh, about what year was years that? ago. It's, so I was in Egypt in 2015 and I was in Mexico in 2012. And in Mexico, there was not as much smartphone penetration yet, but it was rapidly accelerating. And when I was in Egypt, I think like it felt like Prices have gotten low enough that most people could get, you know, some kind of cheap Chinese phone. You know, you know for, for, for an Egyptian, it would be a lot of money, but they can pay it off over time. And that's like their only, their only like, major bill. Yeah. And, you know, and most of these things are prepaid cards. So if you don't, you know, like you, you can let service lapse and get it back. But, like, it's very important for people. Yeah. Um, right. And uh, what I found interesting about it, though, is there was also a cultural gap in how people use them. So, for example, in Egypt, if you know anything about Arabic, can I swear in your podcast? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, please, please. Arabic's a motherfucker to read, all right? Like, it's incredibly hard to read. And literacy in Arabic um, is actually, in a lot of societies that speak, speak Arabic dialects, is actually remarkably low, huh. all right? When I was in Egypt the middle class was far more likely, even if they could not speak English, to read English than they were to read Arabic fluently. All right. They could read some, of course, everybody could read some Arabic, but the language of, uh, of commerce was like global, was kind of a global pidgin English. And this was also true in Asia too. So when I lived in Korea, which was in the, the turn of the last decade, like some English was ubiquitous. Like, so I went to, I had to go to China for an academic conference back then I was a prof and um, like I had some Koreans with me. And so we're going through to, through Chinese customs. And of course, since I, you know, people who don't know me, I'm white. So uh, everyone assumes I can't speak any Asian languages, which was a fair assumption, although I could actually speak basic Korean. Um, And, and uh, so this Korean guy goes up to the, to the customs guy and he doesn't speak Mandarin, and that doesn't piss the customs guy off. He gets pissed off when he doesn't speak English. <laughs> and so, like, I translate for him because he doesn't understand what's going on because he only speaks Korean. And th- that is really rare, even in Korea, to not have some grasp of English. Um, and so I, like, you know, speak to him in, like, really shitty pidgin Korean. But th- the point of the story is, like, English in Asia, it's almost a different language, but it's a language that everybody speaks as a second language, even in places that haven't been conquered by English-speaking countries. It's, mm-hmm. It is the language of, of – and it's taken on characteristics, actually, in these areas that is unique to these areas. So, like, there's a kind of um, – Koreanized English, or we used to call it Konglish, that you speak a lot in in uh, Korea, 
that if you don't know Korean, if you don't, if you haven't lived there, it's not hard to, for, for an English speaker to pick it up, obviously. But like, you don't really know what they're saying either, even though <laughs> it is technically speaking English, and they're using it to communicate. So, I, I, what I want to say this though, that means that there's a culture of it on these smartphones. So there is there is a the poor people in Egypt. Now we're going to jump ahead to Egypt and just get everybody's global perspective here. The poor people in Egypt, for example, generally um, had some knowledge of of a kind of like Arabic, but in English characters, which was interesting. And they read that. And upper middle class people, middle class people, they they actually partook in American and British pop culture straight out. And so there was an interesting cultural divide in English. For I mean, and 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 uh, dealing with Egyptians, for example. Um, amongst Egyptians who were not upper middle class and thus, uh, you know, had access to British and American education, which was at high demand there. That's why I was there. They hated Barack Obama, hated him. All right. Um, for reasons that are complicated, actually, um, they, he was seen as a traitor and like wouldn't take a side during the Egyptian revolution and screw both sides. So everybody hated him. Like, like I could talk to people who who were former Brotherhood and talked to people who were Al-Sisi supporters, and they both hated Barack Obama. And Trump, at first, was super popular in Egypt, mm-hmm. except among this class of, of middle and upper middle class intellectuals who were educated, um, not in America, they were educated in Egypt, they were educated in American and British schools, mm-hmm. and thus had American and British media as their cultural norms. Mm-hmm. And they pretty much thought like American liberals. So... It was a fascinating divide where there's there have been some people who, you know, unfortunately this is this talk has mostly been picked up by right wingers, but mm-hmm. who have pointed out that like the cultural elites um, in a lot of places are basically basically engaged in to, in Chinese and American pop culture, mm-hmm. and more American than Chinese, but you know, and, and and like and occasionally you'll see like bits of Korean and this uh, these other peripheral countries but in the circuit come up and that's what people know and that sets a lot of people's tone so you have a pop culture and a kind of media culture where people have developed people from all over the world have developed parasocial relationships and so parasocial <laughs> means like see like faux social relationships right with with american media centers and american politics but it's totally from the media perspective like they have no organic understanding of it and so it's interesting when I, you know, you'll have a post leftist, I'm going to quote to like Amy Therese in America, <laughs> who is from Lebanon and lives in Canada, and I don't think has ever stepped foot in the United States, or Angela Nagel, who has been in the United States but spent most of her life in Ireland, to, you know, feeding, feeding American pop culture and drawing conclusions about American culture in general from it, with very little organic knowledge of what's actually going on in the United States itself. Yeah, yeah. And this is also true for like leftists who will just believe... Like I know a lot of I got asked yesterday actually by a communist by a, somebody who's involved with a Mandalite party in Sweden, so like a Trotskyist party of Sweden, to write a write-up of what was actually going on in America, because these Trotskyists literally believed everything that the DSA and stuff were saying on Twitter. And I was like, you don't understand the United States. That's a very distorted view. Like and 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 that distorted view even goes back to Americans in the cities themselves. Yeah, yeah. I I will say, uh, just my personal experience as an Australian is like I've over like the last couple of years, I really just have sort of tuned out 
of um, politics in my own country uh, and focused on America. Um, and some of that is obviously like the spectacle of Trump. Uh, some of it's the fact that, you know, like I have, I now have like friends who, are, you know, uh, sort of like on the front line and they're like very serious things could happen to them. Um, and, you know, like in the fight. And so I care about it for that reason. Uh, and then I, and then I also think like, you know, some of it is this sort of like globalization that you were talking about. And, um, I, I think, I think that's both good and bad. Um, I think that, mm-hmm. you know, like, I, I like, you know, if you're not, if you're not like pro internationalism, uh, like, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I think, I think that's a very bad position to have, um, you know, probably one that will end up resulting in human extinction extinction uh that's just my belief but (laughs) at the same time i think that you know uh it is dangerous to have it being like the loudest the loudest voice in the room and it's setting the tone um that's not good well it's not so much that it's to me it's not even so much that people like are watching american politics like i engage in other people in other countries politics and sport too like like i follow canada because you know i um for personal reasons as well as i find it amusing um i actually really care about mexican politics and like because i live there i follow politics in korea because i live there I understand what's going on. In, I kind of, I, I say that, let me rephrase that. I kind of understand what's going on in the Middle East in so much that anyone can because the politics yeah. there are the most yep. complicated yep. insanity I've ever dealt with in my life. Yep. But, um, and I, I say that as a person who literally was in, was be, became an undocumented person in Egypt for about six months <laughs> um, because of weird political changes. Um, and, and uh, you know, like, had the, you know, I tell this story, like the government knew I was there and they wanted me there, but they also didn't want the political pressure of having all this foreign education in the country, mm. but they couldn't, they needed it there too. So they, they, they were doing this double game of like, well, we're going to deny them visas, but we're going to allow everyone to stay to, to work yeah. illegally and stay on, I mean, like, on tourist that, visas effectively. It's like basically like, you had a better time of it, obviously, but like that's basically what's like going on with like Im- immigrants in the United States, like especially those like who. Oh yeah, you know, for sure. Poorly paid. I mean, it, it's why I do. I do a lot of. I don't talk about it on the podcast or anything because I don't want to yeah. endanger it. Actually, but I do a lot of immigrant activism, yeah. and my way into that is I have a lot of immigrants in my family, but um, uh, you know, like who, like my uncle married a Korean woman. Um, my, my family, despite the image that people have of the American South, the American Mm. South is very racially diverse, obviously. Mm. And you know, my family was, my family was very intermarried. Um, uh, so like, even though we were working class and poor and I mean, like I like to, like I was, I used to talk about being a half Jew among shit kickers and that's pretty much true. Um, and you know, that probably doesn't mean much to even a lot of other Americans and definitely Australians are, but you can kind of get the gist. I mean, I, Um, I grew up amongst rednecks, but in an inter, in an, uh, an interracial, intercultural, interfaith family yeah. in the eighties when the clan was still kind of, I mean, I guess the clan's back, but the clan was in its last dying throes, um, at the time. And so, you know, that, that was my world. And I, I tell people this because I grew up in a very, and then a very, you know, multiracial family. And at the same time, 
we still had segregated prom courts and 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 a lot of the, a lot of the proms were deliberately kept private so that there wasn't integrated dances as late oh as the nineties. That's that's so I, I I bring this up right I bring this up because when people are like oh my god you know um are when people were learning about sundown towns in America from 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 American pop culture and this included Americans mm-hmm. um, sundown towns are towns where you know if you're a person of color particularly if you're black. Yep. Um, and you're there after dark. Yep. It, you can be. It's you. 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 You're, you're fair game. Like police won't protect you. And those existed when I was alive. Like I knew where two of them were as yeah. a kid. And so, like this idea that Trumpism was some kind of this oh, reversion yeah. back to like some pre civil rights norms was like, like the civil rights battles were barely won. Yeah. I, weirdly, the best time that I remember for waste relations was right before the election of Barack Obama, like yeah. not during it, yeah. but before it. Yeah. Um, kind and of I left two years into the Obama administration and would come back. And every time I came back, I felt like I felt like I was hearing racist stuff that people had stopped saying in the 90s come back. But, it, you know. Notice that I said they stopped saying it in the 90s. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It really is like like it really is just like how it is kind of crazy just how much history there is in the 20th century. Um, mm. Like the fact that both pre world war one, like pre world war two and then post world war two are part of the same century um, kind of blows my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like thinking about the fact that like the Russian revolution and Mikowski and all that, all that heroic stuff that seems like a bajillion years ago to every leftist was literally only a century ago. Yeah, and like, yeah. there are still a few people alive who would remember those people, you yeah. know, like, yeah. uh, my favorite weird one is like, what was it? The last civil war widow died yesterday. Wait, American civil for the United war? States because, yep. Yep. Because a 17 year old was married off to a 75 year old man. Oh um, God. and she died yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Yesterday. But meaning like, I think they were married in the twenties. But you know, she was she was in her nineties, I believe, maybe maybe even yeah. closer hundred. Um, yeah, that's definitely and, correct. But it is totally possible for that to have happened, and like that, yeah. like even that blows my mind. You know, <laughs> yeah. But I yeah. think a lot of like one of the things about the United States in and since the eighties is people think there hasn't been a lot of history since then, since the fall of the Soviet Union. But I'm like, uh, it's not. It's not been uneventful, people. <laughs> yeah 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 just because you know some asian japanese dude is like history's over oh man yeah (laughs) i'm gonna write a book in 1992 that's accurate for all of three years um i mean i actually (laughs) i actually um so my my uh one of my parents was a university teacher for a bit and they um taught like Mm -hmm. humanities uh and so the end. The end of history was the very first like philosophy text that I ever uh, like really came across. I didn't actually read it at the time, but I remember like reading, you know, the cover of it when I was like like seven or eight, uh, and I remember being like quite sad because um you know it's I don't know it, it, I can't remember the quote exactly, but it's like you know the end of history will be a sad time because you know the you know the the willingness to put one's life out there for like some like you know, abstract goal will be gone. It'll just be replaced with like, you know, simple, 
like self-interest and um you know the part caretaking of um of like human history i was like that's really sad uh like uh, you know i hope i hope something else happens and then um like 20 years later i'm like ah shit shouldn't have thought that yeah i mean what's interesting is I mean, it got, that did feel true for Japan, and it definitely kind of felt true in the '90s for the United States. But mm-hmm. like, by I don't, you know, he Fukuyama, uh, Fukuyama had had like after nine eleven, he'd already said that was wrong, and that was twenty years ago. Yeah, so yeah. you know, it's it's it, yeah. it it's it's a thing that you know was it's it's myth, and it being wrong has outlived. Um, even its immediate context. Although I will say about that, interestingly enough, I actually think Fukuyama is a much more interesting thinker than that book or his brief flirtation with neoconservatism applied. I mean, he's basically saying that recently he's been saying that, you know, only something like, you know, social democratic mixed economy capitalism will stop, you know, will stop the earth from being destroyed, which I think is a little bit actually optimistic, but, um, you know, it's, and, you know, it's funny how, how, how many of these, uh, kind of the, the, the kind of center left of the neoconservative movement (laughs) being disillusioned by Bush, um, has, have, have, how far rhetorically left they've moved. I don't know that it substantially it translates to much, but, but you're uh, to go back to our initial thing. I think the Cold War is all over all of this, and I think it's all mm. over. Yeah, yeah. It, I think it's also interesting the way people understand China and the United States in Cold War terms. Even though, if you did even a basic economic analysis, you would realize that there's no way that can be true because the the United yeah. States and China are totally economically dependent on each other. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, less uh, so than a lot of right wingers think, but, but. Both economies there's totally also, don't work without each other. Fact that, there's also just the fact that, like, this is, you know, a, a struggle basically between, like, I don't know, like, quote unquote, post industrial powers. Uh, whereas, like, mm-hmm. I think well, my, my sort of interpretation of the Cold War is, like, the United States uh, managed to, like, make it out of sort of, you know, industrial capitalism to post industrial capitalism. Uh, and therefore, you know, could like just do things that the Soviet Union couldn't, uh, and then it just like fell apart. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm always stuck between the um, between two analysis of the Soviet Union, which is the non-motor production analysis and the state mm. capitalist analysis, um, because I found both of them convincing actually. Um, and <laughs> to, to break that down, um, the state capitalist analysis is that you know, the Soviet Union was functioning as a capitalist state on the world market and was uh, really run by, like, as a managerial corporation as as a, um, yep. as a country, which I think is, I think some people implied internal to the Soviet Union based off of, you know, the early NEP. And a lot of the first state capitalist theorists are, like, talking about the 1920s in the Soviet Union even, and they didn't really update it. But... Mm. Um, if you look at the, what, what it was doing in the world market, it did kind of act capitalistically. Um, it never could, it never could get rid of its market function. And, you know, even if its market function was weird, but then the non-motor production is like, if you actually look at 
the way they tried to set up markets and the tripartite, three different currencies, three different rubles, um, you know, all that, all that madness, um, you know, like the, the total, the fact that like you had total incentive to lie in the middle, in the middle tier of the Soviet, you know, political economic sphere. So, you know, um, from Brezhnev forward, you just have a hollowing out of the center of the Soviet Union, um, and and actually not so much the top. Um, and um, and so so if you try to say it's cleanly state capitalist, you get into some real problems, yeah. and maybe these maybe some of these categories don't even really apply anymore. Mm-hmm. But I, I I would say that like. I always find it interesting, right? Particularly when you meet like, you know, massive online RPGers who like to pretend that they can bring back high Stalinist Russia and the United States or something. That people don't look at the fact that like the Russian productive sphere and its hyper, like it, you know, it was doing as well as as capitalism during the height of war communism and up through the fifties, yep. right? It really was, and that was true in South uh, in North Korea too versus South Korea. All these things follow an early industrial accumulation model. And if you look at the early phases in the West, they are more sporadic and slow, kind of like India. Hmm. Um, but they are still, they still have really high, you know, um, production capacity. They, they seem to have really high early nominal, uh, nominal GDP. I don't like talking about real GDP. I don't think real GDP is a thing, but, no. um, and, nope. and all these things, um, and so the what they what a lot of the defenders of like the Soviet Union will miss is like the Soviet Union and 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 North Korea and all that seem to actually follow a very similar pattern, just hyper accelerated and much more and, and more bloody in a shorter period of time. Still, all yep. capitalist early development's bloody model that that looks a lot like what happened in the West. Just it just instead of it happening over over an entire century. It happened in 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Um, because, I mean, I mean, like, my explanation for that is basically, like, well, one is, one is like, obviously, it's just, like, low-hanging low fruit. Like, I know that, you know, the Soviet Union was, like, getting capitalists to come along to, like, just build factories for them or show them how to build factories. And then once you, once you like, hit the part, once you, like, once you basically can't stop copying other people and you actually have to, like, start innovating for yourself... Uh, that becomes really hard. Not just because, like, you know, um, there's, like, stuff around, like... And I'm, I'm not sure how, like, this tracks, because I know, like, Soviet hard sciences were, like, some of the best in the world. But, you know, like, the, the speech suppressions they had, like, obviously had a negative impact on technological development. But then also, you know, you've got the question of how to deploy innovations. Um, and, you know, if you've ever had a conversation with a libertarian... Uh, you know the like debates there. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, yeah, a libertarian. Like I've had libertarians who said stuff to me, like, you know, capitalism gave us the iPhone, and I can literally go through and show them, like, okay, <laughs> no, actually, the cybernetic theory was from Russia. The 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 touchscreen was from Russia. Um, like what what happened is there was a bunch of like a lot of that stuff was defected and, and went into R and D in the U S military and then was given to capitalists for free. Mm. Like, um, yeah. but 
you know that to me that doesn't actually that that's not an argument for the Soviet Union. Or it doesn't. It just tells you that the libertarians don't understand yeah. the high level of participation, even in their free market, that the government has to have for anything to work. Uh, because uh, basically, I think I think this is. I mean, so basically, R and D's not incentivized. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm Go gonna ahead. I'm gonna be real. Free. So I'm actually a filthy mutualist. Um, so I'm actually yeah, I, the I actually worst. Think okay, could be good. Yeah. Um, but I think um, I think that yes, I think that libertarians like the stories they tell. Uh, like I I think again going back to the Cold War, I think like they're very um, they're like you know they're very they're very like adapted. We'll say for that context where you know you had certain big bads. And you wanted to, you know, destroy them with facts and logic. And so you lined up your facts and logic mm-hmm. and, you know, you, you punched progressives, uh, which is, you know, that's cool. Um, sometimes progressives need punching. It's pretty easy, too, a lot uh, of the time, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry, go on. Yeah. No, I mean, well, no, no, it's just I was about to say, I think if you look at, like, the progressive arguments of most of the 20th century, it wasn't really hard to just to to knock holes in them or to show how they were like they would have mutually I mean both in left and right you could be like well you have mutually incompatible assumptions here and here and like particularly in America progressivism I think partly because it was a kind of common sense for a certain kind of you know social milieu and social class for a long time was remarkably intellectually lazy um mm. For a long time. I mean, and and so the Cold Warriors actually, you know, even though their arguments were quite bad often, um, they didn't have a hard time punching at a lot of American progressives who would do stuff like try to have their eat, try to have their cake and eat it too on the Soviet Union and, you know, go back and forth here or that or had a really emotive politics. It was mainly about, you know, um, the plight of suffering peoples or either that and the other. And that's not that hard to fight like in, yeah. in an actual spear sort yeah. of. Mode. Yeah. I think, um, I think that's like, uh, and going sort of back to, you know, like smartphones and stuff. Um, I think that's just like a general fact about our current time is that like, I think that everyone is sort of just being caught off guard by the very uneven, but it has nevertheless happened expansion of speech. Um, I mean, that's right. going to caught everyone off guard. I, but I don't know. There's probably like, you know, like, uh, like people who are really into tech, um, who like saw it coming, but like everyone else, I think, um, uh, I was really into tech and I, I, most of the, most of the people saw it much more optimistically. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Only pretty early on that people go, well, some marginal ideas might come back, but really they won't be popular. Like most people are are selectively rational, and I mm. think I actually think you know in non stress times that's actually not a terrible assumption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, shit. Um, when times are stressed, people flail around. Yeah, and you know I saw this in Egypt too, and I I saw it in um in Mexico to some degree. Like you you you've even been to places you know that where where you have a lot of precarity even even amongst elites right Mm. um and you do see cultures of conspiracy and stuff Mm. just pop up 
And, you know, there's a lot of that in Latin America. There's a lot of that in the Middle East. And now there's a lot of that everywhere. I mean, I think the place that doesn't have that is probably East Asia. And the reason why it doesn't, I don't think it's because of any cultural superiority. I think it's because they're, like, much more secure, honestly. I mean, so, I mean, like, I, I don't know that QAnon is spread to Japan. So <laughs> maybe knock on wood there. Yeah, well, esoteric Hitlerism has been in Japan for a while. Um, so, you know, I, there's a couple of things there too, though. So, so there, there's two kinds of stressors and Japan has an example of, of one that I don't think people think about, which is stressors of stagnation. Mm. And then you have, which is sort of what Fukuyama bring him, what he saw as the, you know, the, the end of history's future was, was that, yeah. And then yeah. there are the other stressors, which is stuff is changing really fast and no one has a handle on it. In the United mm-hmm. States, for example, um, like there really is a sense in which like uh, for a lot of the non-urban U.S., um, deaths of despair becoming super common. I mean, average <laughs> lifespan is actually going down. Yeah. Um, I mean, like... Um, it's going up, it's gone up and continues to go up a little by little for minority groups. Um, yep. but for an aggregate, it's going down. So, yeah. um, and, um, and yet there's also the people who are surviving are living longer and longer and longer. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have this really warped demographic spread at the upper end where like, I think, you know, you know, um, we're going to have an average age that's going to be up in the 40s by the yeah. middle of the century, which is similar oh, yeah, to Japan. Yeah, but yeah. also, but also, since we have no social safety net and stuff, that's going to skew politics in a very weird way. Yeah, um, because yeah. there's not like the the you just frankly aren't as likely to survive if you're into that into that uh, age group it, without a lot of resources and. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, and our social safety nets also weren't designed to last that long either. Yeah. So, I mean, one silver lining is that maybe this, you know, encourages, um, creates like a base that will like allow for the necessary like climate refugee migration. Oh God. Well, I mean, I, I think not to get too hopeful in the whole Earth as a metabolic system thing, mm. but I, you know, I think there is a real sense where that's going to happen. And uh, that's part of the political stability of the global North right now. Yeah. Uh, instability of the global North right now. I mean, that's definitely what's driving stuff in Europe, but it's also without it. What do they have? Like, I mean, I guess you can automate everything, yeah. but yeah. not really. And, yeah. um, I mean, this is, this is where, this is where, yeah, I'm with you on a lot of this because I think we're gonna we're gonna see a lot of climate migration, and yeah. um, Canada better be watching its water. I will say that, like, if they think its neighbor to the south won't won't pick back up the War of 1812, eventually they're <laughs> foolish. Um, uh, but, there's um, like a, there's, there is actually I can't remember. Um, oh, uh, the guy who did Saga. Have you read Saga? It's a comic. Sorry, this is a weird tangent. Yeah. Um, that he did, he did a comic. But I have about, read. I know like, Brian. Brian, yeah, cave on. He did a comic about like yeah. it's like a hundred years in the future, and it's uh, Canada defending itself from um, like engaging in like guerrilla warfare against the United States, like 
coming to steal its water, basically. Um, <laughs> well, that's a conspiracy theory in Canada that I used to. That, um, both was not as popular when I when I spent some time in Canada as a kid. But like um, when um, when I lived in Korea, there was a lot of Canadians there, particularly because Canada overproduces teachers and does some weird things. Um, hmm. And so a lot of them get exported to Asia as, you know, good excess um, middle elites do. And, um, and so they were, they would always, you know, they're, they're always really, you know, pro like Korea is one of the, actually one of the few places where Americans were like more than Canadians because Canadians are obnoxious drunks um, <laughs> unless there was a military base nearby. But in general, one of the funny things about, about Canadians in, in Asia is like, people couldn't tell them apart from Americans ever. And so this was a really big sore point for them. And this would often bring up these conspiracy theories about us going to take their water. And eventually I just decided to embrace it um, because I'm a <laughs> jerk. And I was just like, well, you know, you did sack the White House. So I think it's time to finish the war of 1812 and liberate our Northern brethren. Um, because you obviously don't have the cojones to finally throw off your Imperial rule. Um, oh, yeah. And should have done so. Yeah. Uh, although conversely, um, uh, until until very recently, American progressivism had an anglophilia that mm. disgusted me. Um, oh yeah, yeah. You know, my my joke is the only progressive position that Mel Gibson ever held ever held was a hatred of the English. Um, but uh, <laughs> which as an Australian, I'll show you the controversy. But. Um, um, it, it's it, the, um, the, the side effect of that is that there is this weird sort of like, why can't we just join back in the Commonwealth and, and all this? Oh. And sometimes oh, it even shows up in anti-racist narratives. Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. That's, this is a sign of American progressive, progressive culture that like, that, that like wants to undo the, the, you know, um, 1776, um, for a variety of reasons, mm, um, that 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 is wow. Okay, um, well, I'm not going to say what I want to say, which is what an alt right person would say. So, yeah, what what is that? <laughs> uh, I'd call them cocks. <laughs> well, I mean, I think i I've always I, I've always mocked Ameri like American progressives, for example, for always claiming to go to Canada whenever you know a Republican wanna. And the, one of the reasons why I, I would mock them for it, I was like, it's easier for a person from the United States to go to Mexico. Mm. It's it, it is objectively easier. There are more Americans in Mexico than there are in Canada. It's not an expensive visa. It's like two hundred bucks, as opposed to Canada, which is about fifteen thousand dollars, and it's easier to get a job there. And, and yet no one ever does it. It's always, let's go run. And, and frankly, outside of the areas close to the United States, where there are thus cartel wars because of our weird drug laws, mm. um, you know, parts of Mexico are, are as safe as America. Parts of Mexico are war zones. But, you know, you can look up which, what part is what. Um, and, I've, you know, I've, I've lived around both, actually. So, and I would just, I would just mock them. I'm like, why don't you ever say you want to go to Mexico? Why don't you, why is it always, why is it always like some white ass, um, like, you know, country that doesn't even really want you mm. like, yeah. and, and you, 
you know, and I, you know, I, this is what incoherent, but it it actually to me belies a sort of, you know, there's there's an under there's both a parochialism and a not so subtle racism, um, in the history of progressivism in America. Um, I mean, I mean, like they're connected to the eugenics, that, right? That I think still exists. Oh yeah, they advocated eugenics. I mean, they. Um, so it, what makes it complicated, for example, um, is that the idea of unified racial interest is a kind of modern notion. Mm, so yeah, yeah. in like the, the early progressive movement, you could be – so the progressives were also not the only left force in America. There were the populists who were often also – they were anti-eugenics, and, but they were often anti, anti-immigration. Um, yep. You know, they'd make excuses for massacres of Chinese. Uh, the, the Knights of Labor, you know, are known yep. for that. Um, then you had the SPUSA, uh, SPA, excuse me, which the successor organ in the United States is the SPUSA. That doesn't matter. It's tiny. But the SPA, which was a fairly large organization in the early 20th century, um, that World War I um, and one of the many Red Scares, um, sometimes it's called the first Red Scare, but I actually think it's more like the third, uh, suppressed in America where the socialists, you know, they could command 20% of the vote. Yep. Like, Eugene Debs was actually a real threat to Woodrow Wilson. And they were, they were crushed and then, final, and then and were crushed by two events, one of which was, you know, the imprisoning of Debs in World War One, and the other was actually I had no idea what to do about the Russian Revolution, Mm. And the fact that um, the Soviet Union wasn't was playing a bunch of uh, Zinoviev in particular was playing a bunch of the socialist parties against each other to find one that was going to be most useful for them as part of the common term. And uh, so the communist sorry, and the socialist sorry. split. Uh, socialist parties in America? Mm. Yeah. Okay. There's a huge one. No, 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 no. I mean, like, you said we, like you said multiple socialist parties. So what socialist parties? Oh, there was multiple socialist, but they were tiny. So like. So, like, um, if you what you can watch the movie Reds, which is not actually the best version of this, but it does go into this. Like, because of the because of the Socialist Party's inability to respond to the Russian Revolution, there are all these split off parties almost immediately. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, and Zinoviev right. was basically playing them against each other um, until the U.S. the CPUSA was eventually formed. Um, with which, which interestingly was one of those things where like the grassroots membership of it didn't care about what was going on in Russia. They were often doing like anti-racist uh, organizations in the South, actually, and stuff like that. But the leadership was totally immersed in the Comintern. Mm-hmm. And when you after after third periodism ends, they basically funnel everyone into the into the Democratic Party. And this is true up and through the sixties. Like you have people in the in the CPUSA talking to the Kennedy administration. <laughs> Uh, under civil rights pretenses, like, you know, like, I mean, true facts. So it's uh, Lorraine Hansberry, the famous playwright, for example, had 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 access to Robert Kennedy um, and was able to meet with him on the Civil Rights Act and was, yeah. you know, famously um, supported by the CPUSA. So I, I bring this all up because, like, basically that collapsed the socialist stuff in America in a way that that you know happened at other places, but not nearly ex- as extensively, and um, it's part of why our politics, I think, is so strange. I mean, we keep on talking about this, and yet also 
the other thing about uh, when I bring this up when we talk about communication, all of this, it's also our politics were subject to outside forces and not just big ones mm. early on. So it wasn't just, you know, you, you know, the, the large scale movements. It was also like small marginal parties trying to pick sides in, in, in issues. They weren't just theoretical. I mean, like, um, some of the American new left parties were, they were getting money from China, you know, and stuff like that. And China was picking sides and so like, so you can see how complicated this would get just from real, just from real politic reasons. What, what is interesting about this is, is because there was nothing like social media is is people didn't know this was going on. Mm. Like, you know, like we know a lot of this now because, because the feds were so up in everything (laughs) that actually some of our best histories of some of these organizations is from the released COINTEL profiles. (laughs) Um, And also the Soviet archives. Oh yeah. So, we might get a we might get a similar thing if like we ever invent quantum computers that can crack encryption. Um, so look forward to that. Oh my gosh, I, I would I would love to know, for example, when people are being idiots because they're just idiots, and when they're being idiots because there's because there's different kinds of federal agencies from multiple countries involved. Uh, um, you know, I do know, for example, that in the in the U.S. marginal left, there there was a lot of you know, foreign dark money yeah. um, uh, from various governments that, 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 that like, for example, um, at one point, like the Trotskyist party, uh, the SE, the SEP was getting money from Gaddafi um, and this, that, and the other, because, because particularly in our media environment, and I think we'll probably find out there's a lot more that's going on now than we know. And unfortunately, this is fueling a lot of alt-right bullshit conspiracy theories, right? But because there's a certain grain of truth to it, because if I want to cause chaos in America, I can either set up a bot, you know, activist network to do it, or I could literally just back channel uh, activist network some money and let them do what they want to do as agents of chaos. Because, you know, who invented that shit? The, the, the British and the, I mean, the British, the Germans and the Americans were like a number one at that, you know, uh, that's how Lenin got back into Russia, right? Like, <laughs> like uh, the Germans doing that to, to really mess things up. I mean, so it's not like this is a new a new strategy at all. It's just yeah, social yeah. media makes it cheaper. It makes yeah, it yeah. so cheap to do. Yeah, yeah no. Um, I mean, I, like if I'm a state like, and I can like throw twenty thousand dollars at it, that's nothing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my like, my like opinion of like the RussiaGate stuff is like, I think you know the the broad outlines are true, and also it's like, so what? It's like you know, I don't know. It's like the equivalent of being like complaining about like catching a cold. It's like this is just how things. Well, are. Yeah. Like. Yeah, but you know. that was my response too. Is like, uh, unlike a lot of the right wing conspiracies, yes, I think a lot of it is true. I also think it's always true, and it's on yeah. margin, and it didn't matter. Yeah. Like, um, but like, I mean, you know, know, Trump, Trump is probably more mobbed up than most people. That's more susceptible to some of this, but like, you know, bots. I mean, like the Russians also are like botting all sides at all times. They just like, it's, it's, it's one of the few things they can do is. Yeah. And probably like most other like countries. I mean, it's like, it's like basic asymmetric warfare. Um, you know, stop, stop complaining about it. 
Right. I mean, Saudi Arabia, Israel, the EU, they do it too, and we do it to them. And yes, they they get a stink. They raise a stink when we get caught. Yeah. But I mean, it's more just that we were gauche enough to get caught. Like, yes. yeah. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's yeah. this is I, I I I it's interesting how how in America, but maybe it's worldwide in the West, how there is both a sort of like cynicism about statecraft, and yet people also act utterly naive. Yeah. Like. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's, it's I, kind of amazing. I, I my conception is, is like I think a lot of people. I don't I don't know if this is actually like correct, but my, it's like a lot of people take the state to be this sort of like Hegelian thing that's just above us, and it just like does stuff, and like you know it'll just do stuff right. and it'll do it properly. And I'm like, nah, man, that's not true. Uh, I think like even if even if like you're not an anarchist. I think you should be thinking about like politics outside of the state. Um, like, if only for the fact that I think, um, and I, I, you might, you might, you might have like some knowledge about this. You might not, but I think that um, I think like the way that states and like groups organize, I think is like you know you can pretty much see, it, it, no, it's it's very like deeply connected to like communication and information processing technologies. And so as they change, mm-hmm. like, of course, these, um, these things are going to change or new ones are going to come along or they're going to evolve or they're going to die. Um, and I don't think anyone has gotten a general theory of this yet, because if they did, um, like, we, we would probably know about it. Uh, and they'd probably be making quite a bit of money in Silicon Valley giving talks. Uh, but, yeah, uh, I, I, I think, like, that, that is how you should perceive things. Yeah, I would. I mean, I, I I kind of do. I mean, I have a very emergentist view of mm-hmm. the way politics works, and it's actually one of my frustrations now. Um, for years, I was always arguing this sort of like new left, quasi anarchist, like the personalist political. I was arguing against that for a long, long time. That was in America, mm-hmm. and I could go into the history of how that developed in the United States and its relationships to like calling out progressive and communist men for supporting wife beaters. And yep, like, I actually yep, think yep, it yep. wasn't a bad move, but people yep. started to like believe it in a way that it was not yep. thought to apply. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there's been a recently, there's been an inversion of that since this whole like social democratic awakening in the U S where effectively nothing is political, but like <laughs> what the working class does and what the state does and that's it. And and that's it's just dumb. it just seems to me like we have a bad habit of like just taking a stupid narrative and flipping it on its head. Mm. Like so, you know, um a lot of people critique uh you know like the the Chapo Trap House kind of socialist for this. Mm. Um and and you know, um they'll blame Marxism for it. But I, I uh I don't Marxism, think it's just a Marxist Marxism, flaw. Marxism for like Chapo Trap House like shenanigans or like people like wokeness. Yeah, well, they say that like like the base superstructure. Like I'm thinking specifically of some MMT critiques of this, and they'll say, "Oh, the Marxist obsession with the base yeah. is why they don't think anything is political." And I'm like, "No, I think it's actually just like it's literally counter signaling to a to a left narrative that was dominant for yeah, yeah. literally a generation. Yeah. I mean, um, fr- from boomer progressives until until about about when Tumblr got <laughs> made irrelevant. Um, and uh, so three generations of thinkers have been effectively 
reacting to this. And so the natural, the natural way to counter signal is to invert it and say like only what the working class does when it's acting as an agent or only what the state does is politics. And, you know, that's also frankly fucking stupid, but it's, it's a natural counter signal. You know, if you think about social semiotics at all and, and kind of bound choices that you would emerge, um, from from yeah. these subcultures that like inverting these narratives is a nat- is a, an unfortunate natural response and mm-hmm. um you know you can almost like system theoretic it out <laughs> why people would would go from a one stupid conclusion to an almost equal but opposite stupid conclusion yeah um yeah you know um and you, I think, you, for example, um, discussions in America of race and class reduction um, always make me laugh because um, a lot of the class reductionists, in quotation marks, um, don't really have a, a good functional understanding of what class is. And a lot of the race reductionists don't have a good functional understanding of what race is. So, like, it, it's not even what they say it is. It's like, it's more yeah. like, no, this is a popular set of discourse tropes it's very that frankly it's very half-assed and one of the things i've noticed about about uh you want to go back to globalization of pop culture mm-hmm. is more people have access to theoretical frameworks than ever before mm-hmm. but that also means their ability to be vulgarized and made stupid yep. um particularly yep. in forms that prioritize pithiness um thank you twitter uh is is overwhelmingly, you know, easy to do and probably, I mean, super encouraged by the very kind of engagement that you would. So, so more people know about theory and, you know, political economy and can debate things than ever before, but they're also likely to reduce it to like reductio reductio ad absurdum positions super fast Mm. because of the natural incentives of the communication. And also because frankly, People are lazy and and I don't and people think when I say that, that that's good. I actually think it's one of the best things about human beings is that we're kind of always trying to figure out how to offsite labor and be lazy so we can do other things. And um and one of the ways that you can become intellectually lazy that's maladaptive is oversimplifying any framework. Yeah. I mean, so you you move it from a theoretical apparatus into a heuristic. And then from a heuristic into a slogan, and all of a sudden it's very effective at communication. That's also very very wrong. Um, and I guess you know if anyone studies like the history of religion and stuff, we should see we see this happen constantly all the time. Like this is not new. Um, I think the issue today is that we're not used to it happening with advanced political theories or whatever. But you know, yeah, I don't I mean, think anyone I, I, would. You know. Ideas are not magically susceptible you know. because they have to be of a certain category. Uh, so yeah, no, that's very right. Reasonable. Exactly. So I mean, we have stupid Marxism. We also have stupid reactionaryism. I mean, like oh, yeah, the yeah, fact yeah. that you have someone as a rudite as Al, as Alexandra Dugan who writes on Heidegger um, and Derrida and and you know um, reactionary theory in kind of post fascism in a hyper sophisticated way going on Alex Jones and being somehow involved that, you know, tangential to things like QAnon, which are basically, you know, blind idiot, uh, augmented reality cults. Um, 
that you know that this tendency is 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 uh, I think univocal univocal. If anything, the left in America and the left maybe worldwide doesn't realize how successful how susceptible we are to it because we are not given to conspiracies as much as we are given to um, under theorized structures that we just throw around as yeah, kind of shorthands. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like, I mean, like, I think, I think like a really big problem is just that like, you know, empirically validating a lot of this stuff is quite difficult. Um, it's very hard to, to validate structural apparatuses. You're dealing at a level of complexity that, yeah. You know, I mean, the, the human sciences in general, even just for individuals, you're dealing <laughs> at a level of complexity that like confounds most general science. Um, you know, there's a reason why physics is like the is like the the science where we have some of the most stable um, knowledge bases because it's a one of the easiest to run experiments on, and b literally the basis of material being. So it's mm-hmm. You know, as complicated it is, is and as mystified it seems to most people, it is literally the the simplest form of interaction. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah. you know, when you start thinking about emergence and chaos and all that, and and dealing yeah. with like yeah. the over determination, and I mean this in the in the in the um, scientific, not in the Althusserian term. Because <laughs> you know, uh, another thing I hate about about left wing language is particularly from the sixties is this tendency to adopt scientific language and ruin it by using it poorly or, oh, yeah. re, or reframing it in a way that's that is not related to anything yep. um and is like a really right. bad analogy to science yeah i mean like i'm, I'm not really but not i'm actually like not anti-postmodernism like i i actually find like people like baudrillard to be really helpful and helping me mm. think but i do hate it when you when you read something and you get like Althusser over the termination or Deleuze ribosomic and like these approximations to science that have nothing to do with science but also ruin the vocabulary for everybody. So now when I say over determination, people think I mean this highfalutin concept from Althusser that no one understands. What I actually mean is there are too many possible causal factors yeah. to point out a singular cause. Yeah. Like. Yeah. Yeah, and so so what you have is it, it, so you have a lot of correlative data that you can assume is causal, but isn't. And um, you know, I, I think like I don't know. I just have a background in anthropology and like three basic science courses. I can figure this shit out. I don't know why so many other people can't. Yeah. Like, I mean, I mean, like I think it is. Um, so I, I, you know, um, I I read the back cover of. Um, the end of history, and then I didn't do anything related to philosophy for about 10 years. And then I picked up, and I'm pretty sure you've heard of this guy, um, Ernest Becker's The Denial of Death, um, when I was at, like, yep. the end of high school. And um, I was going through some shit. Uh, and that that was that was fun. I had a whole fun existential crisis from that. Highly recommend. Um, I actually tell... I, I talk about terror management theory from yeah. that book all the time. Yeah, and terror management theory and identity. Yeah. And um, people, again, don't know what I'm talking about a lot of times. Yeah. That book is important. I totally agree. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think that, um, I think that if like you seriously like sit down and like be like, all right, so this is what I don't know. And then you're like, 
just th- this is what I don't know. Like according to you know like basic physics, like there there are you know very very quickly we reach like you know shit becomes incomputable, and then you're like, how 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 do I actually know this? Because I've I've never actually you know gone to a physics lab and done an experiment. Uh, I, I'm I'm friends with some physicists, but they could be lying. Uh, the entire journals could be lying, and then you then you quickly realize just like how like little uh, actual like solid foundation you have for anything. You're like, oh, okay. Yeah, you can get to an uh, an epistemic crisis really fast once you realize yeah. stuff like, oh, scientists believed in ether for a bajillion years, yeah. Yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, um, because it made the math work. Like, and, and and like you know, like we're basically right now, uh, we're making conservative arguments, um, and I don't, I don't, you know, I think, I think that like no, conservative. I... <laughs> ar- <laughs> Sorry. Well, conservative arguments often have a certain a certain pool of them because they're based in something true. Yeah, yeah. Their their responses to them is like basically like, oh, and this uncertainty, but I can sell you this certainty. Then blah 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 blah. And there is yeah, there actually yeah. is a sense in which I think radical, heroic skepticism. You know, like if you think that's what postmodernism was ultimately about, for example, yeah. um, is naturally and is naturally conservative. Like, oh yeah, yeah, totally. You've um, um actually, sorry. Uh, Matt, Matt McNannis, who's uh, related to Zero Books, uh, yes. recently published Postmodern Conservatism, which I think is, uh, I think is like the best take on Trump uh, I've come across. So, ups to him. He's got a podcast. So uh, I listen to it. I, I, well, interestingly, I always think Matt McManus is really good when talking about the right and really oh. wrong when talking <laughs> about the left because he has he has basic liberal political science assumptions. Yeah. But his arguments about po- about postmodern conservatism, I started worrying about that even in the when I was coming out of the evangelical um, <clears throat> community, when I realized that, for example, presuppositional um, presuppositional apologetics, which was common on the right, um, is actually um, rooted in some of the same language problems and. Um, epistemological framework problems that like deconstruction was rooted in. <laughs> um, and they know it too, actually. And so like uh, they can invoke that. I mean, um, yeah, but I, I do think there is also a very real sense. For example, like when I talk about this, people will talk about how like string theory or brain theory or dark matter has to be true because of the math. And I'm like, there's all kinds of things we thought were true because mm-hmm. of the math. Like I, going back to defending Ptolemaic calendars because the math worked out better because uh, it did um, um, mm-hmm. to uh, ether to I'm like, you're you could have fundamental frameworks wrong. And that's why the math doesn't work. Yeah. And that's why the incomputability mm-hmm. becomes a problem. Yeah. Not that, you know, I mean, you know, I often do wonder, like, is is the whole like, you know, quantum standard model divide actually a problem or is it you know like is, is it really incomputable or is it like just our framework is wrong somewhere even in something that seems as solid as physics and all right yeah and i say it seems as solid as physics because one of the things about physics is even though it's the base science like i mean you know I, I, another example i guess i can get into and I, I don't talk about this stuff as much anymore but like how is string theory not metaphysics? Like, I don't even see how you can disprove parts of it. Yeah, right? Yeah. Like, there, there is, like, literally no theoretical, like, 
there's no like for some of them there's no immediate um practical applications and no falsifiability criterion now i realize falsifiability criterion for example is kind of a bullshit way of looking at science but but like still like i don't have a whole lot of anything i could do like i don't even know what the predictable like it doesn't seem predictable it seems it seems to explain things but you can do that ad hoc Mm. um now leftists don't tend to get that much into theory of science. I mean, like, there is a real problem in that when I deal with um, leftists educated in science, they tend to either be not or they tend to be engineers. Mm. <laughs> and um, my social science brain kicks in and I go, anytime I meet an engineer, mm. um, in specific, like, they're like the majority of weirdo terrorists and people who believe really strange shit. Um, <laughs> Have you read, uh, Jeffrey Huff's reactionary modernism? Uh, no, I haven't, but I will add that to my list of things to read. Yeah, uh, so uh, the reason I bring it up though is that uh, the I think it's the second final chapter is about Nazi engineers. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, so reactionary modernism, it might. It might not be published under that in America. Anyway, uh, um, I'm sure so you can. I, I I'll look it up. Pirate. Anyway, whatever. I'll get it. Um, we don't worry about that. But yeah, so I, I think that's. I think I don't say, and I said that not to like crap on engineers. Actually, I think I think what it is is like there's a certain kind of applied model brain. Yeah. yeah. Um, that uh, that that can appear to like can appeal to all kinds of political ideologies, but then. Like then, you, then it seems like you don't have a whole lot of people in behaviors of science until you get to like anthropology, which you know I'm from. You know my my science education. You know I'm not an anthropologist. I don't have a degree in anthropology, um, but I, I do have a pretty extensive actual education in it um, because of some another degree that I got for to become a lawyer. Weirdly, <laughs> um, but the uh, the. The issue that you have there is like anthropologists, they can't decide if they're even a science. Yep. Um, <laughs> like, it, like it was literally debated in the American Anthropological Society to take the word science out of the mission statement. Mm. Um, and B, like it's, it's radically different depending on what field that you study in. And so like you, when you meet leftist anthropologists, they tend to be cultural anthropologists, not, mm. not um, uh, forensic or you know, historical anthropologists. Yeah. Right. So, um, so, you know, interestingly, all of all anthropologists also, there's a, you, there's a tendency to be more likely to be, um, anarchist than Marxist. Um, yep. which I couldn't tell you, I, I, I don't really have a structural theory as to why that is, but yeah. it's, you know, like, I think there's like two Marxist anthropologists of note and like oh. everybody else is, you know, either non-political or they have vague anarchist sympathies. <laughs> but uh, there isn't a whole lot of studying of, um, of like, comparative biology and stuff on the left. That seems to scare leftists. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. And I think I'm not quite sure why it scares them so much. So speaking for myself, um, my, in, my, like, instinctive response is, uh, you know, it's like, Oh, like what? What if? What if you are correct? Like, what if you can actually justify this horrible shit off biological grounds? Or you know, like what if? What if like you know the conser- like reactionaries or conservatives are right? 
and like you know people from different groups like can't work together or they can't work together as well it's like it's like statistical um and you know like we might have to mm-hmm. we might have to like concede some ground um and that that seems like really fucked up um and so that that whenever like i you know thought about it uh that that like was my single response whenever i tried to like reason that out uh that that was what i got and then you know i i came across, yeah but like, but like that seems to be like a denial of reality though yeah like, like, I know. so if, if any of those things are true yeah. like it's just I mean, like i mean one of the things i think about it may may also help explain the confusion is so most of the way you can answer this is there's an is ought distinction, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there is a way in which Marxist politics in particular, but leftist politics in general, mm. have kind of been in denial about the, the is ought distinction anyway. Mm. Um, particularly in the you know early 20th century Marxism, which was like communism yeah. has to happen because it's literally a necessity because <laughs> because the you know Hegelian logic means there is no is ought distinction. Um, it's not whatever is is right, but kind of it is within historical periodizations or whatever. And I don't think like there's plenty of evidence that Marx, you know, and not that you have to defend Marx. Um, and I, I don't defend Marx on everything either, actually. But that he wasn't cons- it, it, at minimum, he wasn't consistent on that thought, on that line of thinking, yeah. um, particularly in his late writings. Um, and uh but it is it is definitely there and was definitely a big part of Marxism is like, oh, well, we don't really have to put, you know, put forth a, a positive politics or we can go wildly between volunteerism and like hyper determinism, depending on our mood, because um, there we don't have to, we don't worry about the as distinction because we fundamentally reject it. Um, and I think that sort of that is sort of thrown throughout um, leftist thinking. And I also think, um, and this was not originally a leftist position, interestingly, it was more of behavioralist and capitalist, but it's become a leftist position, a tendency towards, um, you know, the view of, of, alt, of, of, there's no such thing as human innateness, mm. um, ever. And everything in social construction is voluntaristic, um, and you know, I, I, when I really study anthropology, I don't even know how you parse the social and the biological separate from each other. Totally. Yeah. yeah like mean, we're a social animal. Like, how do you yeah. even change that? Like, and I, I, I have pointed out that that's not Marx's position, but it is a position Marxists have taken since yeah. the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah. Um, and that, that's how you get, that's how you get yeah, some yeah. strands of primitivism. Yeah, well, whew. um yeah, well, you know, are people who are who like almost have social construction that's not of our understanding of reality but of reality itself, they basically believe in magic. This is not a problem in Marxist circles, but it is a problem in like anti-imperialist anarchist circles where, you know, mm. it's like you can't tell people their magic is wrong and I'm like, well, it's wrong. <laughs> like y- y- <laughs> Like yeah. uh, there's plenty of uh, of social frameworks and stuff. I totally cannot tell them they're wrong, and there's no way to adjudicate between it. But like, yes, no, like sympathetic magic doesn't work. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> 
for anyone. And it's not like we haven't had it in the West as part of our culture in the past either. So come on. And it's also not like, yeah, there's a bunch of weird assumptions that happen in that. Like there's an inversion of Eurocentrism that also like pretends like there hasn't been scientific thinkers outside of the West. And that Western science is just a cultural imposition. It's just yeah. such a strange way of thinking. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, uh, so uh, actually a good book on this is um, Prophets, Prophets Facing Backwards, uh, which details like reactionaries in India picking up postmodernism to like defend their reactionary beliefs and like people from lower castes oh, yeah. uh, embracing science uh, and rationality to like you know do so, like social movements against them um Miranda is actually awesome on this and awesome on the western misunderstanding of this um yeah. and has been for a long time like that's not the only book by Miranda that I would suggest people read unfortunately um Miranda is often associated with new atheism which now everyone oh, in man. in the United States thinks is inherently reactionary because of the because it's you know with the exception of Daniel Dennett, they all ended up being inherently reactionary, yeah, yeah, yeah. which I remember saying at the time, but it had nothing to do with atheism. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like, no, they're just sneaking in all these, you know, yeah. positivistic bullshit claims. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will say, Go ahead. Um, uh, I have, uh, one of my Twitter friends is like pretty into the, um, atheist scene and apparently, um, well, well I'm sure you'd know this actually, but like, uh, you know, Surprise! Unsurprisingly, like most atheists, are like you know, basically like Bernie Sanders supporters. Um, when you poll them, um, right. But there's a but there's a bunch of very loud ones that are yeah, all, yeah. that are almost alt rightist. It's yeah. it, it I mean, is. I I would say I would say like that no. that that feels like more of like a 2016 thing, uh, to me. But yeah, I I I think that's still like the assumption. I think I think it went away very fast. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, I think those people were shut out of the movement very, very quickly. But that perception yeah. has remained on the U.S. left. I mean, like, there. You, one of the craziest debates that I've seen online was literally is denying is denying anthro, uh, astrology sexist. <laughs> yes. By left, like, oh, and I was boy. just like, you know. I was like, this is where we've gone. And, and the funny thing is, is postmodernism is not really a problem on the American left anymore. This isn't even postmodernism at all. This is, this is basically, I mean, I, I think it's basically like standpoint epistemology, which is not truly a postmodern theory. You can actually blame it on Marxist. <laughs> and I know Marxists who hate that, but I pointed it out. Like, huh? um, it goes back to Lukash's reading of Marx and like, um, and uh, I, unfortunately, um, a lot of people at Kuwait and all those all those things in the United States, um, you know, link those with postmodernism. But oh, but yeah. it has led to some very weird, like your belief structures and irrational things are, you know, like you need to believe in certain irrational things not to be sexist, racist, et cetera. Now I say this as a person who, A, I am personally um, non-theistically quasi-religious mm-hmm. and B, um, I take religious studies and all that stuff very, very seriously oh, in yeah, ways that yeah. you atheists you in general didn't. Yeah. And you totally should. Um, but I, I find some of this stuff to just be 
hilarious. Like, particularly stuff like reading reading the American Muslim community back on Muslims and uh, in in um, in the Middle East are in Europe, like mm-hmm. as proxies for one another, because that's totally not accurate at all. Like, and I can tell you this from personal experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and there's all kinds of reasons for that. And um, but American leftists don't really. I think they don't want to deal with it at all because to. I remember once, for example, I made an argument against race realism that took genetic um, genetic population drift seriously. Mm. So, for example, I would talk about how uh, there's stuff like there are genetic traits that we can track and track the populations. None of them map to race at all. Mm. And I got told there were a, a category of leftists, some of which this was personal, but the, some people picked it up, that since I took genetic determinism seriously at all that I was making apologia for race realists and thus was really a race realist myself. (sighs) Like, and I'm like, no, literally if you look at human, the human genome, that is the best killer of, of race is anything but a social construct because morphology doesn't match to phenotype and, and phenotype doesn't really match the genotype. Like, and if, if you looked at population genetics, I could prove it to you. Yeah. Like. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's also um I don't know if you know this, but um and this is again another tangent, but um I've I've like re- I have been reading some well over the last couple of years I read some books on um like you know developments in evolutionary biology, and like there are there are people coming out being like yeah you know like like Darwinism and like selection uh once you get like you know like large multicellular creatures like starts to matter less and less just because like you know they're so adaptable that um like you just need to get like roughly the right environment um right like you you know like that that like really undermines like a lot of reactionary arguments about like survival of the fittest and stuff and yet you know i haven't really seen anyone talking about this um which is a shame. Well, because they're not familiar. The only thing I've seen talked about in left-wing circles from biological science is everyone getting a boner for epigenetics because it makes the Marxist exception with Lamarckianism look like it was actually accurate. Uh, yeah. um, you think? You think? Uh, you think? Because Atticus, you know, if you read like, sorry, uh, you, you go ahead and then I'll. No, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I was just gonna say, you're like, you, no, well, you're I, like, I would think anarchists would would pick it up. Would, I think they would because you know anarchists are more interested in anthropology. Well, I, I was also going to say, like, you know, like stuff like, um, you know, animal cooperation and stuff uh, and intelligence because of like Kropotkin. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, Marxists are, are, are historically have insisted on the on the uniqueness of human beings mm. um, as part of its dialectical structure. And one of the things that I've pointed out is, you know, they would say that labor or social organization was the, what's unique, but I'm like, man, you got labor and social organization with beavers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I, I was literally I'll, watching a video today. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. No, you go on and then I'll make my point. No, I was just saying I was literally watching a video today about, about why certain beavers died out. And it was because, um, the the dam building beavers were were able to alter their environment in ways to maintain their habitat in ways the other species of beavers were not, mm. um, and so the idea that that kind of labor envi- environmental altering is totally unique to humans is just frankly false. There's, yeah. there's it's just not true. Yeah. 
Are you familiar with uh, the self-domestication hypothesis? Yes, I am. Yeah. Um, there's, oh, I can't remember who, but someone someone wrote a book saying that um, it was um, like <laughs> this is. I I I I think they're like this is a hypothesis, but um, I I want it to be true. But they were like, um, it was the evolution of language that allowed like people, well, complex language because obviously some animals have like a very rudimentary form of language. But it was it was what allowed like people to like you know coordinate together behind the backs of like alpha males and then kill them, and then 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 that over the course of like hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, was a selective breeding that like bred those traits out of humans and that's why like where that's how we self-domesticated which i don't know is i don't know if it's true but i want it to be true because it'll make reactionaries really really mad well i you know i i am a firm believer and it shows up in my poetry but i actually believe this anthropologically Mm. that language was invented to hide things not to communicate because if you understand how humans communicate um, verbal language is the only way we can easily lie. Right, Most yes. of our other language forms, we don't have enough control over to, and we, and we use them. And like, if anyone has dealt with the way people act on the internet and why people have anxiety and stuff, it's because like, there's so many other language inputs that it's shut off from. And yeah. it's not just like tone, like yeah, you, yeah, you yeah, communicate yeah, yeah. broad spectrumly with your body. So like, but it, it's very hard to lie with that. You have to train yourself mm-hmm. to lie with your body. Like it is not easy to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but it ain't that hard to lie with language. And so, yeah, I mean, I think I have, I've always bought that. I also, I also am a subscriber to the self, to, to the, to the self-domestication thesis. And that I think it's a good thing. I think that's actually yeah, probably yeah. why we survived when some of our other hominid friends did not, mm-hmm. um, is because, uh, the, inquisitiveness and brain you know and brain development and brain plasticity yeah. is an adolescent trait that in self in if people know domestication theory domestication of animals increases the manifestation of, of adolescent traits for much much mm-hmm. longer um and if we self-domesticated we have a lot of analyst of adolescent traits that you yep. and if you compare us to chimpanzees and bonobos bonobos have a lot more adolescent traits than chimpanzees do and, um, you know, and so do we, although I, I'm also a believer that basically we're a weird species that has both tendencies, hmm. um, both the chimp tendency and the, and the bonobo tendency. So we can be friendly and, you know, sexual pair bond and, and negotiate. And we clearly do this. Um, yeah. and then also under stress, we become murder machines. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. like our chimpanzee friends, yeah. um, you know, but also chimpanzees can be domesticated and, you know, they're not always murder machines. Yeah, no. Um, um, I, but, yeah. I, there's like but, an anecdote uh, from Franz Duval, who's like, you know, a primatologist. Right. Really famous one about how uh, I think, you know, like he was going away and, you know, he was looking after, no, like in, uh, you know, enclosure with a bunch of like his chimps and there was one that were like, you know, he had really good friends with and like he talked about how it like it hugged him before he left and you know well it was on one hand really touching and sentimental on the other hand he's like yeah like you know if this if this animal wanted to it could like tear me apart at any time yeah i mean that's the thing like 
Like, um, for example, another uh, famous example, I don't know if it was the wall, but it's another primatologist I was, I was listening to tell me, like, they lost a finger because a, um, a bonobo was trying to warn them and bit them. Oh, no. And its jaw power took that finger right off. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know. Um, and, and we uh, one of the things about humans, and this is one of the things that I think um, – one of the things I think leftists actually kind of, you know, Marxists, Kropotkinists and stuff kind of inherently understand is and it's almost dialectical in expression, right? We are kind of the weakest ass ape. Mm. Yep. Like we are physically weaker than most other apes. Um, maybe all other apes of comparable yeah, yeah. size. Um, and yet because of our ingenuity in light of that very fact, mm. we're the most dangerous primate. Yeah, no. Like, we, you know, we, uh, we wipe out whole species really nilly. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, and it didn't even take, um, like, you know, we didn't even need like advanced technology for it. Like, you know, if you look at, um, like what, like, like, uh, large mammals started going extinct when, like, yeah, we needed language in the addle addle. That was all we needed. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. I mean, um, it, it is amazing. Like, one thing is, like, we, we have this massive destructive power, and I was like, we have this massive destructive power with sticks. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> because of social organization, we figured out how to chase whole herds off of a cliff with sticks. Of course, yeah. we would figure other stuff out. I mean, yeah. it does, it is weird. I mean, you know, when you think about the development of human sciences, my other favorite fact is we were splitting the atom for 20 years before we figured out the Heimlich maneuver. Like we're a strange species, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, Which is crazy, we, right? Like, we we figured out like wheels on the bottom of suitcases in like the nineties. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like we've had wheel technology for I don't know ever, but <laughs> I mean, human ingenuity. This is one one of my arguments when when Marxists get very lockstep and like, well, it has to be this way, this way, and this way. And I'm like, yeah. uh, no, it doesn't. Have you ever seen how stochastic and weird scientific development is? Because like, like we yeah. can all develop like cathode ray technology at the same time. And yet we won't figure out what to put a wheel on. Like it's very strange. Yeah. I don't know. I guess, I guess this should give you anarchist. Your, your father when arguing with Marxist online. And I, I guess as a good Marxist. I shouldn't give you this, but it's, if you're trying, you know, trying to be scientifically literate, this is something you have to do. And the one thing I'll say about um, Marxist discussion of science is they tend to be obsessed with Soviet, Soviet um, philosophy of science from like the 20s, oh. and 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 then like now, and they drop everything in between. <laughs> it's it's kind of funny. Uh, yeah. Um, dodge that, Lysenko. Um. Yeah, D- Dodge Lysenko because, and also like Lysenko wasn't a little Markian, even though he's kind of started that way. So we can save Ingalls that way. And oh, epigenetics means Lamarckianism wasn't totally wrong, except epigenetic, except the epigenetic manifestations are not what you're saying they are. They're not like it's not like you cleanly pass traits down in adaptive ways. It makes sense. It's a lot of it has to do with genetic noise and protein markers and. Yep. And gene manifestations that some of which are adaptive, some of which are not, you know, like, you know, leftist, you know, politicized readings of science tend to be shit. Like it's not, yeah. I, I'm coming down on leftist cause that's what I know, yeah. but like, you know, it, 
reactionary reappropriations of science are often hilariously oh, yeah. wrong too. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, I I completely um, agree. Um, you know, like like um like what is it the my favorite one, I'm Arnold from the Fight Like an Animal podcast talked about this yep. one too, but I'd realized it years ago as well. Like the 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 whole like racialist different breeding strategies, and I was like, oh, yes. you realize that <laughs> you realize that, that a difference between one and six kids is not actually a huge enough breeding strategy difference to actually matter evolutionarily. Yeah. <laughs> like, also, also like my, my mom, my, my mom had like, you know, like five siblings and she's like incredibly white so shut the fuck up yeah it's like um mormons have tend to have four kids or more like it's you know they're pretty white um so like this is not a racial breeding strategy it it is a difference actually between income and and urban rural tensions um in fact, but, it's, it's, you know, it's like whatever. a I mean, strategy based on, like, economic prospects, which you claim to know all about. And right. You don't. Interesting. Yeah, and, 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 it's a re- and it's also, on margin difference, it's not even a reproductive strategy that would have any that much evolutionary effect because bride, wide breeding is like having 150 kids mm. and not raising any of them and, let you know, like, like seahorses. It is not... The difference between one and six, or one and eight, yeah, yeah. like um, it's just it, it, you know, like it, it is it is a laughably bad argument if you know yeah. anything about biology. Yeah. Um, but you know, since most people don't, I mean, another another favorite bad, but made by less reactionaries, not racist ones, but is like the market works like the market is efficient because it works like Darwinism. And then you have to point out one Darwinistic fitness is stochastic. It actually doesn't, it is not teleologically coherent. Like what is, what is fit in one environment can immediately become unfit within a generation. And two, 99.9% of all life is unfit to survive. And so if you're saying that that's how we should run the economy, you're basically saying that like we have a, we, we are willing to accept a failure, an economic failure rate of almost a hundred percent. Like, that's funny as an argument for economic efficiency, you idiot. Like, you know, mm. you don't really understand evolution if you're saying, or, or, or economics, if you're making those kind of um, claims. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, you did, bad also, the bad stories like we tell ourselves to go to, you know, go to, if, if you, go to if sleep. If you're on the economy like that, you also probably shouldn't, like, have anyone talking to each other ever. Because you know you, you want like entirely genetic, not um, horizontal transfer of information. Right. Yes. Yeah. So. So yeah. So you have to you have to stop all 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 collaborationism because we know where that's going to go. I mean, like it'll lead to it'll lead to um, you know information asymmetry, and then and then, uh oh, we don't. It doesn't work like genes anymore. Um, yep. So, you know, and the best way to keep information symmetrical is for no one to have any of it. You're completely, (laughs) you're completely right. Uh, (laughs) um, So, yeah, there's, there's that, there's that funness, um, which is, yeah, I mean, it's interesting though, right? Because right now it seems we've been talking for an hour and it seems like we're a thousand miles away from, 
from you know any sort of politics, and yet I don't see how you talk about human politics without without some basic understanding of the way sociality works. I mean, yeah. even, you know, I, lately I've been trying to get people to grok that there isn't really a separation on a deep level between economics, politics, and culture. Like, that these what? things are, they're not the same, <laughs> but they're not really different either. And because, you know, they're all tied into biological sociality and, you know, the way we construct that, right? And, like... And like, yeah, this seems to be very hard for people to understand. We just, we like, just need to draw because it messes up their their narrative categories. We just need to draw like you know, just like cybernetic feedback loops, and then like just get like a lot of like feedback, like a lot of you know circles, like you know, feeding back onto themselves, and you just get larger and larger circles, and you put like st- text over it, and you just like just read this. If you don't get it, just go back and read it again, and you just keep on doing that until you know you get it. Yeah. I, well, people don't understand. Like, I have, crit- I, you know, I have some critiques of cybernetic theory, right? But like, people don't understand why I consider it so important to a lot of the problems we have, um, not just in Marxism and socialism, but like in general yeah. about you know weird uses of conceptual drift, understanding systems with individuals without like doing this weird thing where you deny any human agency. Like, yes, I, we can get into stupid philosophical debates about counter-causal free will, but you know what? If everything is that determined, then, then me not believing in free will is also determined. So shut the fuck up. Like <laughs> also I realize that you, you can't shut the fuck up because you're determined to be obnoxious forever. Um, but you apparently don't realize that, but you're determined. Not really. So like, it doesn't matter. It's literally a non-starter question to a, to a like because like well we have to change the way we deal with the way we deal with crime because of human agency being you know being determined and I'm like you know that for that to matter we would have to agency would have to be meaningful otherwise we're just going to, like you can't intervene in a totally caused concept loop yeah. like idiot like if you're right you're wrong yeah um. Yeah. Um, you know, and I know that's a reductor ad absurdum, but unless you're like, I, I am sort of actually like a, a compatibilist. Like I think oh, yeah, there's no. something yeah. meaningful to agency. That's correct. Like, like, I think there's something meaningful to agency, but no, we don't have a council causal free will because like nothing like that would be weird. That would imply like, uh, that would imply that there's a self cause anything. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, but, but yeah, I mean, anyway, um, but, but you do have to account for human agency and also account for systemic development and like both total humans, like free will, super agency, total, like we have total humanistic control over society and thus we can reorder society in any which, which way, um, which is, you know, sometimes a Marxist position. And this is also, it's, and verse is also sometimes a Marxist position. There is no human causal agency. Everything is systems and ideology, which is scientifically and Brandon, like, you know, there's no way out of that. I, I, to me, both those are non-starters. Yeah. And yeah. again, this is they're why common assumptions. Of left. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, a radical centrism. <laughs> That means a lot of things, man. (laughs) So, yeah, and that's also why, like, when I come up Marxism and stuff, a lot of people think I'm a hyper-Orthodox Marxist, and then a lot of hyper-Orthodox Marxists think I'm crazy. 
because I take stuff like game theory seriously and uh, like I'll argue about like the, 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 the tendency of the rate of profit to fall cannot be a law because it's a tendency. <laughs> like, like if there are countervailing, if there are multiple countervailing tendencies that which you cannot totally map yeah. and you clearly can't because you've been wrong in these predictions over and over and over again about the final crisis, um, then you do not have a law. You have a tendency. And a tendency has things that, that stochastic effects and non-stochastic effects, actually, that can offset the, the tendency. Like, meaning you don't have a hard rule of motion. And also, like, analogies to social science to 19th century physics is probably not the greatest way to think about social science. Um, so, you know, like, like, the laws of motions a la Newton had to be modified, too. To be true, yep. even though they were more or less true. Like, you know, yeah. like come yeah, it's on. It's like true um, specific re- resolution. Yeah. And, and like, you, you talk about, you talk to Marxists about that. You talk to Marxists about, like, analogical models, and they get really mad. It's just <laughs> like, I'm like, you know, the basin superstructure is an analogical model. That does not mean that it's just a metaphor you can do anything with, but it's it also it's not the same thing as an objective fact. Mm. And that's true for any analogical model, including like our model of the atom. Like, um, you know, and trying to get Marxist because I don't know, I feel like, you know, a lot of Marxists don't come out of a background of having a lot of understanding of, of sciences. And then, you know, they come at it from a philosophical position and like try to jump into the philosophy of science like with no mm-hmm. science background or with a very specialized science background and to be fair um to this is a problem with all complex theories and particularly in our current economic situation we are encouraged to be specialists in such a way that you 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 have a hard time making general enough arguments to do a lot mm-hmm. of this i think the the the, the hyper specialization is a lot of what leads a lot of marxist theory and a lot of leftist theory in general to be, for example, to mistake historiography for history mm. um, and typologies for for facts and and stuff like that, and you know that that is de- highly deleterious to to thinking. But you know, if you're not making knowledge claims or whatever, I don't think it affects your politics on a day to day basis hardly at all. Um, which you know, which you know, but. To have to to really go into politics like we're doing right now, you have to be, yeah. you do kind of have to be um, read in so many different fields that it, that you know at least with a you know a what I like to call a three a three good book understanding um, that most people can't can't do it. And I will say like this is this is where this is where I sort of like almost become a democracy skeptic, right? Because I'm like. Mm. In our infinitely complex society, how can I have a society where people are both specialized enough to do specialized labor, but mm. are generalized enough to make rational decisions in fields democratically, which I think people have the intelligence to do, yeah. but only if they have any incentive to yeah. have that kind of knowledge and who has the incentive to know that many different things to run a complex society. Like I do get into the like, the 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 whole almost again almost conservative argument about over complexity and civil and, and civilizations and it leading to like all kinds of systemic collapse, which is where my like dark 
when I go, when I like give up on Marxism and become like an even condone, like, like pessimist of like, of, you know, of social cycles. That's, that's, I, I do admit that like that, that um, technological and sociological complexity does, does sometimes make me a little worried about yeah. left politics. Um, yeah. But then again, again, conversely, cause I like to argue both sides. It also makes <laughs> me think that maybe, um, that, that maybe, um, maybe a post-capitalist non-representative democracy um, where you where more parts of life was truly democratized, maybe it would people would be incentivized to actually not be stupid on a lot of different subjects. Mm-hmm. Because right now you kind of we both yeah. don't have time, and also don't have no incentive for for most people to be generalists. There there really uh, isn't you, uh, an incentive to do that. Are you familiar with the work of Eleanor Ostrom? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think like I think her arguments around democracy and what it looks like i think is like the best argument for democracy i've come across i mean there's some objective there's some objective good arguments for democracy like autocratic systems tend to have more like um food failures and whatnot so there, there's that um, yeah but uh yeah. but i do i i also you know i have ostrom in my head in one end and then you know the rise and fall of complex civilization in the other yeah um so um, but yeah. yeah, the the governing the commons book is a really good book. Yeah, um, and more leftists should, should fucking read it. God damn it! Well, well why uh, again? Why do why do you think that not? Why do you think a lot of leftists don't read it when it's a book that arguably like like almost um, both anthropologically and um, and almost statistically proves that a lot of leftist organization stuff actually does work. <laughs> It's like we're not interested in proving that we can actually do this. Yeah. <laughs> like we're I mean, just interested I mean, in asserting that we might be able to. <laughs> I mean, the, I mean, the obvious answer is like, um, didn't she? Uh, isn't she like related to George Mason University, which you know has a very uh, libertarian uh, economics department? Um, I, 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 I know that you know, like she is seeing like a lot of uh, libertarians and self-describing neoliberals are like, yes. Which, which I think actually is good. Um, I mean, uh, uh, Ostrom, you know, Ostrom's work is is interesting, and I, I'm cool, I'm cool with a lot of these, you know, ideas becoming more broadly popular. But I mean, like, if you were to combine mm-hmm. Ostrom with like Michael Hudson's, you know, theories of imperialism and monetary forms, and Graeber's work on primatology mm-hmm. and debt and all that. Um, and, you know, uh, sur- su- you know, surplus accumulation leading to social hierarchies and um, offsetting. Like, these things are actually, to me, really, really important, even if you're not an anarchist. Like, you, yeah, you sure. really do need to understand this. Um, and, you know, I don't really... I, why do we need to have, like, the 50th debate about Althusser? And, you know, <laughs> and I say this as a person who literally has a side job where I don't talk about the stuff I'm talking about with you, but I talk about the history of Marxism and, and anarchism and this very, like, let me show you how things have always been fucked up. But then like, why are we having the same debates? Because frankly, the rest of the world really has moved on from some of this. And even if we keep the basic frameworks, we need to know how and why the rest of the world moved on. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, even if like Marx is right about this, 
Well, there's this whole other dimension of human of human sociality that it would be very good to incorporate some of this knowledge about. Yeah. Um, instead of like still debating like Marxio Freudianism, like <laughs> you know, and I'm not an anti Freud, you know, I'm not anti Freudian or anything, but like, come on, we 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 there's a lot more science than that. Like, yeah. Yeah. we don't have to just be stuck. You know, I used to complain about this when I was in you know. When I was a paleoconservative in literature, I used to I used to literally say this all the time. Um, uh, why is it that political and, and literary theory is where bad philosophy goes to die or to be a zombie for 150 years? Like it's like you know it's like the grave the graveyard of science and philosophy, um, and uh, <laughs> you know like. Um, but I don't know. I mean, okay. I guess it's a very frustrating point to start to wind up on. But yeah, yeah. Um, I was getting that. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh man. Uh, no, this is so we started everything. talking about American politics, and we ended talking about how everyone's a scientist. Like most politicos are scientifically illiterate in ways that. I actually do think matter for their politics, like oh yeah, 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 like, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think it matters for their political theory too. I mean, one of the things that I, I do think, for example, like leftists not understanding in-group, out-group distinctions and stress factors, and um, you know, innate incentive differences between regions and all this leads to a moralizing politics, even amongst people who claim they're not doing it, that is utterly unhelpful. Mm-hmm. Like you, like I don't think shaming people is going to get rid of systemic racism. For example, like, like, like it might work on individuals if they're liberally inclined, but on a society-wide level, that's not going to get you hardly anywhere. Um, and I think we see plenty of evidence for that right now. Oh, actually, yeah, yeah. so. So um, I will say this. I will say this. I think that I think mm-hmm. you're right. I think that you know. I think that everyone listening to this, regardless of their persuasion, should take away that we don't know a lot, and that's that's pretty scary. But and this this is like one thing that is the optimism that I cling to, no matter how bad things get. I think there's a lot a lot of low hanging fruit, um, and I think that you know it it might be hard to like harvest it, but. I think that, you know, we can, I think that we can do a lot more uh, than we think because we've left a lot of stuff like lying on the floor or sometimes even in our pockets. Yeah, well, I think for, when it comes to like climate change and all that, we're both in dire straits and you're completely right. There's also a lot of low hanging fruit. <laughs> like it's, 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 uh, it, it's kind of amazing to me how we've gotten into both an overcomplication and then an over-individualized view of this where I'm like, well, some of this stuff is actually not that hard. Mm. Like, um, like one of the things I talk about is you want to get rid of, of a lot of the problems between city and country, you know, encourage uh, density in the country. And believe it or not, um, there are places that have done this just because they had to. Korea's done it. Like Korea is mm. one of those places you can go to the countryside and you see high rises, right? Yeah. And like little community, little like intense little like small urban communities. Um, 
in a rural environment because there's not enough land because the north has cut it off and it's yep. a peninsula. Um, and it's a bunch of mountains, and it has to be pretty productive um, to support its population, even with a bunch of imports. So they structure, you know, they, they encourage density of of housing and of and of zoning, even in areas that in the United States we wouldn't do it. Mm. And like reducing, I actually think reducing um, the food divisions between the urban and rural. And um, increasing population density while also allowing people to have the benefits of, of, you know, access to land that you don't get in the city. And I I mean that even just like going outside and enjoying, Mm. you know, enjoying nature and whatnot. Mm. Um, That's not really that hard to do and would have a massive effect on our efficiency on rural urban tensions Mm. um, on on a lot of this, um, reducing suburbanization and suburbanization, I think is yep. in general, just bad. Yeah. Um, yep. like it's the, it's the worst compromise between the, between the urban and rural, like, um, um, and, and it's, it's not even something that I could, you know, like, uh, the new urbanism, which was possible, which co- possible in the arts. I see that as possible everywhere. But what we saw with the new urbanism is it became, it, it made cities attractive again and thus regentrified them and pushed mm-hmm. and pushed yeah. poor people into the suburbs. Yeah. Um, and, and also has like increased even more hostility between the rural and urban sector. And like, that's not really that hard to fix. It really isn't. Yeah. yeah. Like, especially like, because like, it's, it, not, you it, know. it, it, it it's not like a leftist issue. Um, you could probably get like pretty broad support for it, I imagine. Yeah, you could. I mean, and another thing that I think you get parts of uh, like that progressives and communists and whatever could get support for is also like increased urban food production to end mm-hmm. things like just like food deserts, mm-hmm. like where there's just shitty like you you have like eighty five Seven Elevens and no grocery stores. Mm-hmm. Like in yeah. in, ur- in urban environments and with people who don't have cars and which is a fair amount oh, of yeah. poor, urban poor people, they, they don't really have, you know, a lot of good food options and like stuff like that. I mean, this is reformist stuff, you know, from the Marxist perspective, but it's actually like oh, social yeah. engineering stuff yeah. that isn't hard. It yeah. is not yeah. as hard as people make it out to be. Yeah. And, and know, nutrition, I mean, nutrition, nutrition is a fucking big deal. Like a huge like um it's one of the it's one of those big deaths of despair slash Mm. you know uh nutrition's tied into that so much um yeah oh god i mean one of the things i did point out with in covid for example when covid hit i was like like socialized medicine actually wasn't to tell if you fucked that up or not Mm. there were other tells um i mean you know the uk has socialized medicine it screwed up almost as bad as the united states um and, uh, you know, and so, and China weirdly doesn't have a socialized medicine section as people think it does, which is also hilarious. Um, cause most people, most people don't know that much about how China's actual internal economy works. Like doctors are poorly paid and mm. I mean, it was actually liberalized in the eighties, like extensively. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, but they do have a command economy, <laughs> despite the fact they don't really have a strong social medicine sector and we're able to handle this a little better, um, a little better after initially really messing up, but 
you know, so I don't want to, there is a tendency in both the left and liberal circles in America to romanticize the Chinese response, but um, they did do better than we did. And again, some of this is not super large hanging fruit to socially organize. It really isn't. Um, Yeah. I mean, like, um, I mean, like one of, you know, as, as an anarchist, like one of the most inspiring, um, like, like responses to COVID in my opinion was, um, was the people of Hong Kong who, you know, obviously like they're not ideologically anarchist, but, um, you know, they were at the beginning of 2020, they were both like fighting China in the streets, uh, while responding to COVID pretty effectively, uh, like without help from the government of the city. Um, and you know, obviously that's like, but don't you know that's a plot, Frank? Uh, Yes, yes, yes. Uh, the, you know, the CIA were smuggling <laughs> vaccines, um, which is how they dealt with it. Uh, no, um, you know, I, I think I think there's like, you know, there's obviously like uh, one aspect to that is like, you know, when you're when like a group is threatened, um, they'll become more internally cooperative. Um, but also, you know, I, I think I think like, you know, a city of that density, like pulling that off, even if, you know, they did have motivation to do so, I think is like pretty impressive. Um, oh, extremely. Um, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I think a lot of this stuff has been, even in the United States, for example, mutual aid groups and stuff response mm. to COVID early was actually pretty heartening. Um, and, uh, like every major city I know got pretty good aid stuff going on, even yeah. in, you know, a place as deracinated as, as the urban core of the U S uh, pretty quickly. Um, mm. Was it the most effective thing ever? No. Does it stop, you know, what, you know, like all the shenanigans we're likely to have in the next year or two as these protections roll out and people have year, like a, a, up to like a year of back rent to pay? <laughs> and, and at most, mm. um, like 600 to 2,000 more dollars to pay with? Um, no. Um, but but it did, it did think, make things... A lot, but I mean, you know, I saw the organization of outdoor homeless encampments um, mm. that were COVID resistant, and you know that's been a problem, right? Because the the shelters in the United States um, are COVID breeding grounds. Yep. yep. And so we already had a homeless problem, uh, you know, and now that's because of because of investment housing and all that. I mean, we have plenty. Like our housing stock is low, but our housing stock is not that low. There's still tons of it unused um it's it um but anyway so so um but the shelters are not built for that sort of thing and so they were they're covid breeding centers Mm -hmm. um and so we've had uh very effective um outdoor like camps and stuff emerge to deal with it and you know i don't want to romanticize any of that but it, it it has been better and it slowed the spread down um however at the same time we have constant city crackdowns on them in most cities. So, yeah, you know, like uh, something like 90% of our anti-homeless budget in, in Salt Lake, um, which used to have a very, like a actually world renowned homeless program, but that stopped about uh, um, six years ago, seven years ago under a democratic administration, I may yep. add. Yep. Um, uh, um, 90% of our uh, homeless budget now goes into policing. <sighs> God. You know, like, you know, just 
you know, basically it's illegal to not have a place. And we shut down a lot of the shelters because they were in downtown and that was wanted for economic development because of California increasing our housing prices in the entire West. Um, So, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, stuff like that. Fun, 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 fun stuff. Um, Yeah. Um, So you can, you, you know, and so that's where we're at, but it gives me hope. It also like, it also like makes a certain Marxist over-reliance on the state. Like, yeah, yeah. you know me, I'm not, uh, I'm not an anarchist, but I'm also not uh, a hyper statist by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. Um, For example, I keep on telling people that socialism and national uh, socialization and nationalization aren't the same things, even in (laughs) Marx. Um, And, and like Engels, you know, even in his letters to Kalski when he was endorsing the Erfurt program, was making a pretty damn big deal about that. Mm. Um, so, you know, my, my reasons for pointing that out is that um, uh, is that there's a lot of like blind statism, even in even in uh, you know Marxist circles, that I think empirically doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. like like. Uh, like the 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 um the over focus on centralization for efficiency like mm. for example they it just pretends like we don't know about you know basic statistical system brittleness from over from over centralization yeah. yeah. like like that we we know that that's that's like yeah like yeah. like the, the more hyper the more teleological centralized something is Yes, it increases efficiency to a point, and then it becomes brittle, and you have all kinds of systemic breakdown. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like you can mathematically work that out. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think uh, my my I, I think my favorite like point on this is um, there's a essay from David Graeber, uh, I think in like twenty you know uh, two thousand and two, uh, where he's like, yeah, like until you know the First World War, like uh, it was actually anarchists who were like the radical you know, the, the radicals who want to overthrow the state and like Marxists were more reformist and like doing party stuff. And then World War One came around, and everyone was like, Well, you know, World War One and the Russian Revolution and everyone was like, Oh shit, like suddenly, you know, we need to figure out the centralization stuff because like clearly it's a matter of existential survival. <laughs> right. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean and uh for both parties it's it's uh yeah, it, it it's something, uh, you know. I think um, you know I, one of the things people will get if they listen to a lot of me is me telling everybody they need to read more and everything ever. Yep. Um, yep. And you know, I think in some ways that's always true. Like, yes, you need to read eight more books on nine different things, um, <laughs> some of which are only vaguely related to each other. Um, like, here's this thing on Aquinas and Christian history, and here's this thing on bound choice theory, and uh, here's this thing on math. And 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 by the way, to say anything meaningful about uh, the history of economics, you need to know all of this, and also how um, language was used in ancient Mesopotamian trading systems with paper money. <laughs> Bye. Um, you know, like, and I guess that's super frustrating because it makes it makes understanding political history rather daunting, but. Um, in a very real sense, though, people do need to get out of their conceptual bubbles. And I don't mean like in the like generic, like, oh, I should read liberals and I should read conservatives. No, you should also read stuff completely outside of your field. Mm-hmm. Like, and I realize there is, there is a time cost to that and opportunity cost is real. 
So you have to be selective and try to pick the best things to read or listen to or watch. However, you take in information. I'm not, mm. you know, I think books are better than most things, but I'm not totally, you know, yeah, I'm yeah. Not yeah. totally against that, you know, in every sense of the word. Um, but, uh, but yeah, in general, um, that people need to engage with this, at least engage with it more, even if it's finding stupid YouTube videos right before, before, you know, the corporations make that too hard to do on these topics, you know, um, you know, get, get a VPN and get on some network that you're not supposed to get on in the United States and, uh, and get that done, you know? Um, so I guess the, the imperative here is in this free floating all over the place conversation where we didn't even talk about everything we talked about talking about, um, that people need to learn more and read more in science and, uh, read more. And I also think read more in the history. Like I do, I do think, um, my fundamental frustration with most science education Mm. is that it's not historical enough. And my fundamental frustration with most historical and political education is not scientific enough. Like, (laughs) and maybe that's because I have an anthropological bias and, you know, that's a historical science, but like, no, seriously, it it really kind of is important. Um, so that would be my my final takeaway for all. If anyone could follow all the various threads of this very yeah. discursive yeah. Um, way uh, that I go about things. Uh, well, I bet I bet your students absolutely love it. They they do, but they also absolutely ask me to summarize at the beginning and end so that they know what the hell I was on about <laughs> because they are not used to. Um, circular discourse patterns um, as opposed uh, to the good old uh, Anglo-American linear one. Uh, um, and I was, uh, you know, I always laugh because I'm like, yeah, you know, in, in cultures like Spain and, and, and stuff, people are totally, totally, um, they totally just talk this way. So yeah. <laughs> you should get used to it, but whatever. Well, you should you know, tell um, them that, you know, this is how it's going to be in the brave new world where, I don't know, like we need to figure out this complexity stuff. Oh, I, yeah, and it's – I guess I'll plug one of the podcasts I do to, mm. to end this off, but uh, the podcast I do, Mortal Science, emerges is out of these questions. Like yep. Um, yep. we call it before and after Marxism, and so it's a little bit niche, but it actually is specifically about like, you know, how, why are the analytic Marxists so close to being right but wrong because of this, this, and this? Why is so much Marxism basically eschatological? or is philosophically like bounded off in its own weird niche tradition. Um, Why are, you know, why, why is this claim for this and this and this to be the immortal science, like laughable because it doesn't even have basic scientific or historical concepts. Correct. And, um, you know, and the thing is, Esri and I are both, I mean, I think Esri might be closer to a post Marxist now, but Mm. we're, we're both, we both come straight out of the Marxist tradition in this mm-hmm. regard. And it's a, it's a kind of an imminent and internal critique to people just not being rigorous uh, in these kind of, in in this kind of thinking at all. Yep. Um, yep. And to try to be more rigorous and try to be less dogmatic in approaching a lot of these questions. Cause you can't argue from logical necessity a hundred percent of the time. If you're, if your premises are wrong, it won't matter. Yep. Right. Yep. Like. Yep. Uh, I'm also I'm also going to recommend, and I think it's a lot. 
this is how I found you in the beginning. Um, all of the episodes you've done with some some side chats um, on uh, in the enemy camp, I think they're all amazing, and everyone should check them out. That's ah, cool. yes, the me talking about reactionary thinkers and make it. You know, I'm often. It's funny because I'm often uh, almost. I'll be a little bit honest with you. I'm often almost frustrated with um trying to trying to talk about right wing theory mm-hmm. to left wingers because um it's hard to get them into the mindset to understand what the claims are. Mm. Um and uh you know and I think Swamp Side Chats is a good way to do that. But I've heard other attempts to engage like with enemy camp thinking. And a lot of times they like people don't they come in with such radically different uh, presumptions to the text that mm. they actually don't really understand the claims of the text. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And, uh, and uh, that, that is always fascinating for me when I go in with, um, you know, talking about like all these right wing things. And yeah, they always, I like, I, they don't always ask me on for enemy camp episodes, but usually I'm the person they can find who's read it already. Um, <laughs> because I spent a lot of my life, um, you know, on the on the paleoconservative right, but also like reading right wing political theory and trying to work out why anyone would have believed it. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I strongly, I also just think Charles like Chance is pretty good in general. I normally yeah. don't like book club podcasts because I think people should read the goddamn book, mm-hmm. but um, um, I think it's uh, I think it's super helpful. Um, and and some of the stuff, yeah, like you know, let them read Evola so you don't have to, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, but another, yeah, um, you know, uh, I, I think I'm particularly proud of like um, the Demestra episode mm. I did with them, um, and the uh, and um, a recent episode in San Francisco and yeah, episodes yeah, of Maury really Rothbart. Yep. Yep. Um, so people can understand, you know, the the kind of intellectual vanguard of the other thing, though, the only thing I will say, uh, as a mild critique of what we do there is frankly, if we really wanted to do the enemy camp real justice, we'd also have to read a lot of like normie reactionary shit that, you know, it's less sexy. Um, and no one, no one on the left really wants to read that. Like, does it, it's really hard to get someone to read like, like uh, Russell Kirk or um, or William Buckley or uh, people who are actually more commonly read than like mm. super far right weirdos um, on the right. I mean, like how many rightists have read Abola versus like Milton Friedman? Like, uh, I, know, think, I think I think the, uh, that's my I think the ratio over the last couple of years is like started slipping. But yeah, I get your point. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, I think actually you're correct. Um, uh, but it's still like, you know, I, 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 am not, I am not so sure we have like hundreds of thousands of people who, who can uh, quote, ride the tiger to me. Yeah. Um, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, uh, you know, are, 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 would I explain that like Ernst Younger hated fascist, um, even though he was reactionary, mm. um, and so did Spengler. Yep. Um, yep. Or when I try to get someone to understand that, like, 
that like there are internal divisions to fascism that are not insignificant or, um, or, you know, are yeah. I mean, are, are that like, Hey, the can some of these conservative and right wing thinkers hate each other as much as leftists hate each other. Yeah. And yeah. you should understand that. Yeah. Um, I, I really, I really do hate like the meme where it's like, you know, the right is like really unified and the left is not, um, Especially because you know that's you, yeah that's horseshit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And especially because you know, like you go, um, you know, you go like scroll through like a right wing or like a reactionary Twitter feed, and like you'll see them be like, yeah, you know, like just George Soros is like paying like queer Antifa to like beat up people who you know <laughs> hate like like white people. Like, yeah, you know, and you're like, all right, yeah, they're basically. They basically only appear to be unified off of oppositional fear, which mm. is also somewhat true for us. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. And, um, and, and yeah, I mean, you could tell neither engaging in the intellectual traditions nor, you know, I, I don't necessarily want people to go out and like subject themselves to parlor to understand the <laughs> alt right, but, um, and QAnon and all that. But I have told people, for example, that like, hey, you know, almost as many Q people got got uh, won primaries and a couple got seats as DSAers. So um, if you think they're marginal, they're bigger than you. Mm-hmm. And what, you know, so, yeah. Right. Anyway, I think I think that's a good place. to. I don't it. envy uh, you having to edit this. Oh, yeah. it's going to be so much fun. I'm going to get to listen to you a lot. So it's going to be great. Hey, I decided to include some poetry by uh, Derek at the end of this. Hope you enjoy. Our first poem for this evening will be Interrogative. Interrogative. Do you dream of vultures? Picking at the roadside deer, stripping it down to the framing, an interlace like a negligee, an autumn. Do you take the bullet train to the edge of the world, watch oceans fall into the abyss of stars, Despite the impossible cosmology, do you know the continental drift pulling the plates apart from their marriage, a slow spat between ashen, rocky lovers until they crash into a new partner? Do you see the trains coming in from Russia to Paris across the Asian tundra? Do you know where we wait for each other? Do you know my ex-wife? Do you know the ache of scavenging? Do you see the caribou carcass in the distance buzzing alone? Do you know the tracks we called Sweetie and Darling do not end? Do you know they keep going? Do you want to save me from this wandering? Do you want to keep me like a locket, closed to your heart, but covered in metal? Do you care that this is not about you? Do you see the sky? Do you know it's empty? Do you care? Do you? (laughs) 